Hello, hello, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I hope you're doing well. And with some great callers tonight. And the uh, first caller was asking about the meaning of life, the purpose of life. And he talked about eight years ago, I put out a three-part series on the meaning of life and asked if any of my opinions had changed and what might be going on with that. And uh, isn't it true that we've got this kind of nihilism, this lack of a larger purpose that might, in fact, be threatening the continued existence of Western civilization? So a great chat about that. The second caller is sort of personal trainer, and he deals with a lot of older people who feel that the world has gone to hell in a handbasket, have no idea why. So I'm afraid he tripped over the wire of my boomer resentment or resentment towards the boomers. And so <clears throat> I had a little bit of vocalization to do about that, which I think you'll find funny and enlightening. And uh, the last caller just doesn't know who to trust when it comes to the media anymore. I guess maybe me a little bit since he's calling in for that. But he wanted to know how on earth can you figure out who to trust in this crazy cocked up universe of infinite media possibilities. So I talked about some of the reasons and ways in which I try to figure out who's trustworthy. And hopefully that will be of help to you because that's a pretty important question to try and answer. So here we go. And thank you so much for listening. For those of you who've missed the call-in shows over the last, I guess, week and a half or so, uh, we took a little bit of a break. Everything's great. Uh, thanks for everyone's concern. We have uh, great shows coming up. I am tanned, rested, relaxed, and um, looking forward to getting back into it with our fine listeners and callers tonight. Please don't forget, just before we start, don't forget fdrurl.com slash donate to help out the show. And, of course, you can follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux and all that other kind of good stuff like... Our Amazon affiliate link, fdrurl.com slash Amazon. Uh, please, please help out the show. Help it to grow and to do the great work that it has been doing, that we have been doing together as a community. With that being said, let's move into the brains of the outfit. You, the wondrous callers. All right. Well, up first today, we have Chris. Chris wrote in and said, is there a difference between purpose and meaning? Eight years ago, Stefan put out a three-part series on the meaning of life, which argued that there is no meaning in life and that meaning is a fake substitute for fulfillment. Today, it's hard to ignore that the nihilism associated with not having a greater purpose than ourselves is risking the destruction of Western civilization. If meaning and purpose are different concepts, how can we be sure we aren't confusing the two? That's from Chris. Oh, hey, Chris. How you doing? I'm well. How are you? I'm well. Thank you. Is there anything you wanted to add to the question? Um, no, I, that, not, nothing, nothing specific, I guess. I just, I'm struggling to find my life's purpose. It's sort of become, I've got my life set up just the way I want it, and it's becoming sort of work home, work home, that sort of thing. And I don't know what work home means. Well, just, you go to work, you come home, and... My job isn't especially isn't especially interesting. It's just, um, it's just like it maintaining airplanes doesn't. I don't know. It seems it seems like I could be I could be doing more with myself. Yeah, as a guy who flies, I'm I'm very happy that the airplanes are maintained. So, you know, keeping people from crashing into fiery ruins, not bad. You know, metaphorically, it's what I do on this show. But you're doing it a little bit more directly. Oh yeah, but uh, it's a little bit. I know what you mean, like this idea that you can sort of feel like a worker bee after a while. Yeah, and it, I don't know, it, it's not really challenging work. It is a lot of take things apart, inspect them, put them back together, and 
I don't know. I feel I feel like it's it's gotten me it's gotten me resources. Now will it get me? Will it do intellectual stimulation to me over a long period no. of time? No. No. Taking things apart and putting them back together. Again, kind of a description of this show, but if it's more sort of hands-on, then it's not going to be as satisfying. So, purpose. Meaning, you know, it's this kind of joke question in philosophy. What is the meaning of life? Other than a not-so-funny and exceedingly gross Monty Python movie, what is the meaning uh, of life? And to me, it's one of these fake questions. What is the Zen of the unicorn? I mean, life has no meaning. Uh, there is nothing imbued in meaning in our atomic structure. Uh, we can accept fantasies if we want and call them meanings, that uh, our goal is to um, reject the devil and pursue God and get into heaven. We can say that our goal is to sacrifice our life in defense of the welfare and interests of the proletariat. Uh, we can say that the goal of our life is to um, obey the rulers in our nationalistic fantasy universe. We can say lots of things about what the meaning of our life is, but there is no meaning other than what we believe. There is nothing that exists in the way that gravity exists or a tree exists that we can call meaning. And the search for meaning to me is generally a, a noose or a lariat that other people put around us in order to drag them in the direction that they want. Meaning in general almost always translates into obedience to fantasy story spinners and their nefarious <laughs> linguistics. So I don't think that meaning is a particularly useful thing to pursue and of course, it can't be defined philosophically, or scientifically, or empirically, or rationally, or in any form whatsoever. And therefore, meaning, I'm afraid, is meaningless. <laughs> it's one of these kind of language paradoxes that it's important to understand. Now, purpose is a different matter. And a purpose, of course, is the end goal of your life and the necessary steps that we would take to achieve the end goal. So, for example, if you wanted to be a great pianist, you'd first need to get your hands on a piano, and then you would need to, if you were me, replace your hands with robot piano playing hands and call yourself a cyborg of infinite musical genius. But for most people, it simply involves taking lots of lessons, practicing lots of scales, and uh, working your way up. So that's your purpose. If your purpose is to lose weight, then you exercise more and you eat less and so on, or eat differently. And uh, if your purpose is to get a PhD, then, um, you know, you rip out your individuation and you conform yourself into the hive mind of leftist academia. And lo and behold, you will be rewarded with sinecure and uh, summers off and all of that uh, for the mere stomach churning process of indoctrinating the young into the virtue of our lefty rulers. So purpose is different in that it can be objectively defined. But purpose, of course, has no moral content. Because one, one's purpose could be to, I don't know, go around strangling kittens or you did certain things. You've got to find the kittens. You've got to steal your heart against them mewling. And so purpose has no moral content in particular, but purpose at least is, is objectively definable empirically. And um, so meaning is meaningless. Purpose is amoral, which is not to say right, if you have a moral purpose, then it becomes moral. And if you have an immoral purpose, it becomes immoral or an amoral purpose or a non-moral content purpose, like becoming a pianist is neither morally good nor morally bad. So uh, purpose is um, like a weather vane. It can go in whatever direction you want. But meaning is usually a quicksand, a linguistic quicksand 
designed to entrap your willpower into the preferences of your rulers or the utility of your rulers. Like a farmer would really, really want to convince his cows that the meaning of life was to placidly give milk and surrender their throat to the knife when the farmer got hungry for a burger. So um, I don't think you're going to find any particular answers either in the word meaning or purpose in terms of life's dissatisfactions, which is not to say there isn't an answer, but that answer usually involves emotions that we've been trained to be uncomfortable with. So let me ask you this, if you don't mind. No, not at all. Where do you think the world is heading? Oh, for a return to the early 19th century. Go on. Uh, well, I've been following Mike Maloney's stuff, and he's been, he seems to think that by the end of this decade, we will, my generation will, in particular, will experience a worse than the Great Depression economic event. So, uh, right. yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know that old song, My Sharona? Yes. M -m -m Mike Maloney. Anyway, so. So there's going to be a uh, a tough passage ahead, a um, a whittling down of the gene pool to some degree as a whole, at least of the intellectual gene pool. So uh, challenging times are coming. Is this perhaps putting some wrinkles in the strength and direction of any purpose you might want? I, I, Tsunami's I, coming. Feel like building a house together. Yeah, I no. I guess, I guess, yeah, I guess it's it tough, does. Right, it's tough when you when you know that there's a big roiling change coming down the pipeline. Right, it's kind of tough to have a big purpose that's self-defined. Right, purpose being, let's survive. Yeah, yeah, and I've been working to set myself up and to do exactly that. Right, so. Uh, purpose in this case, if uh, what um, you're talking about is true, and mathematically it seems impossible to escape that basic reality, then the purpose is not proactive but reactive, right? Right. Because if bad things are coming and the best you can hope for is not to flourish, well, I guess, no, I shouldn't say that. Because Mike Baloney and Peter Schiff and, and uh, Salente and other people have... Businesses, which seem reasonable, helping people to look at a chance of flourishing during an economic downturn. An economic downturn isn't an economic downturn for everyone. It's just an economic downturn for people who don't understand what's happening. So you can make money and you can flourish to some degree, at least in an economic downturn, even in a Great Depression. But um, so it's tougher to have long-term plans when you're waiting for the shit to hit the fan, right? Oh, yeah, very much. Right. And that is a challenge. Is there anything you could do to help others understand and prepare for what's coming? I, I just annoy my colleagues by talking about it constantly. And I get the odd flickers of curiosity and mostly just dismissive hand waves. Right. So they are taking the exit ramp off the future gene pool, perhaps, when it comes to um, getting through some of the, the upcoming challenges, right? I would think. Right. And that's a shame. You know, that is a real shame. And that is a kind of a heartbreaking thing. But, you know, as I've argued before, we have to harden our hearts against people who won't listen. Yeah. Because all we're doing is tracing, training people not to listen the next time. 
if uh, if we save everyone who scorned us for our warnings, uh, we are not doing the future any good. Right. And I have no intention of doing anything proactively to save any anyone that hasn't I don't know hasn't listened or hasn't been kind to me in I guess in in the in current year. <laughs> now you said today it's hard to ignore that the nihilism associated with not having a greater purpose than ourselves is risking the destruction of Western civilization. Right. Um, nihilism, not having a greater purpose than ourselves. I don't think nihilism is the cause. Nihilism may be a side effect, but it's not like when we don't have a greater purpose than ourselves, it's not like we end up as nihilists. Uh, what I would say is because, well, first of all, I just need to talk about people I dislike. Yeah, it's always so deeply satisfying for me, if not necessarily for the people I dislike. But one group of people I dislike are the people who, and I'm sure they'll write this underneath this video, <laughs> the people who say, oh, I haven't watched Steph's video yet. But hey, let me take a guess. The state and women and child abuse are to blame for whatever problem comes up. Let me just take a guess. <laughs> And um, it's not that we end up nihilistic because we somehow lose our purpose. What happens is that when the state enters into what were formerly communal, voluntary, and personal relationships and withers those away, the state is this sort of big, giant, squat toad that sits on plants and then they're dead by the time it finally <laughs> rots away. So the state has intervened itself into our personal relationships. It has become the husband to single moms. It has become the educator instead of the parents because the government in general forces children into the schools and then lo loads huge amounts of homework onto the kids so that they can't get parental transmission of values. It has stripped away religious instruction from the public sphere to a large degree. In fact, you can't even have the Ten Commandments in a courtroom in America in many places. And so the government has taken over and intervened itself and elbowed and shouldered aside. A charity, right? Why, why did people used to get to know their neighbors? Why did people have community organizations? You know, the Elks, the Shriners, the, the friendly societies that used to be around in the 19th century, up until really the welfare state came along. Well, people had community relationships because life was risky. And when you take away that risk with the welfare state and free healthcare and free education and uh, unemployment insurance and all that kind of stuff, you, you, you take away the need for people to have these relationships. And when you have great relationships, you don't worry about meaning and purpose. If you're doing good in your community, if you're helping out in the world, you don't worry about those things. They don't strike you. Like, in the moment of a great orgasm, there are very few people thinking, but really, what's the meaning of all this mess <laughs> and squirtiness? I mean, it's not because you're fulfilled in that moment for, for whatever that's worth. And so I don't know if you've seen there was this, this guy has spent the last couple of years roaming around, taking photographs of abandoned places in the world. And one of them was some house somewhere, or I think it was some mine that had closed down or something like that. And sand had gone and half buried everything in the house, right? The windows 
were either left open or were broken and sand had blown in and sand dunes were filling the house. Now, of course, if somebody lived there and loved that house, that would never happen. You close the door, close the window, close the door. And if sand blows in, you sweep it up and take it back out. And there's a wide, there's old schools, there's old cathedrals, there's old fairgrounds. There's tons of abandoned places in the world. And for some people, that's depressing. Oh, look at all the resources poured into this thing and nobody goes there anymore. How sad that is. Assuming it's not the government that killed them, I view that as liberating because all the people who aren't there are doing something that people want more. I mean, you could, if you wanted, pay a whole bunch of people to go stand out in some abandoned fairground in Bulgaria waiting for customers that never come, but what a huge waste of human resources. And those people would have a little trouble with the questions of meaning and purpose. And so community, our tribe, our neighborhoods, our connections have become like these abandoned houses, these abandoned bridges, these abandoned churches, these abandoned cathedrals, these abandoned fairgrounds. They have rotted away because the state has come in, shouldered all those things aside and replaced coercion, replaced voluntarism, and benevolence with coercion and decay. And so generally people involved in a positive collective communal exercise don't worry about purpose, don't worry about meaning, because a lot of the meaning is, well, I'm doing good and enjoying my social relations, and we're social animals. We're tribal social animals. And when the state shoulders its way in and rips up and tears asunder and destroys our tribes, our neighborhoods, our communities, our groups. It, it kills a very essential and elemental aspect of ourselves. There are animals that you isolate them, they don't care. They don't care. Single animals, right? Animals that don't work in packs. Assuming, you know, if you spay a cat and... Uh, doesn't have a sexual desire anymore, which would lead it to want to mate, and they're not really pack animals. So, But if you take a dog and isolate a dog, well, the dog is a pack animal. The dog experiences loneliness that solo animals, non-pack animals, don't experience. And so when the state comes in and, and with the sort of fine acidic mist of coercive pseudo-benevolence dissolves all of the spider webs and wonderful, glorious ties that bind and give us meaning and give us purpose... When the state comes in and dissolves and decays all of these ties that keep us together as social animals. As Aristotle said, the man who can live alone is either a monster or a god, (laughs) but not a human being. And we lose this connection, we lose this purpose, we lose this meaning of tribalism. The state is like a zoo of solo animals. Again, for natural loners, it's not the end of the world. But for most of us who want that tribal connection, who want that group, that community, it's a kind of drugged and deceptive agony to be isolated in this kind of way. And so the one thing we have to look forward to, and I know, I know, everybody's like, oh, there's going to be a Great Depression, worse than the last Great Depression, and so on. And it is going to be a difficult transition. But, but, Chris, let me tell you, 
As the state shrinks, communities grow. Our tribal instincts return, they re-emerge. The pack animal nature of our benevolent philanthropy reattaches us to each other. The common enemy called risk, which the government has shielded us from, re-emerges and binds us back together. You know, there's this whole thing, oh, well, if aliens threaten the human race, we'd all bond together and fight the aliens. Okay, well, there's an alien in our midst, a danger in our midst, a predator in our midst called risk, called could get sick, called could lose your job, called whatever, could run out of money. And to alleviate this risk, we share ourselves with others. And we've had the soft corrosive hell of near infinite individuality for too long. By individuality, I mean people who have gained the privilege of not needing to submit themselves to social constraints. You can live in splendid and glorious isolation because the state will take care of your risk, will keep the predator of risk away from your door. And so you don't need people. You don't need to be part of a community. You don't need to share risk. You don't need to help out others. You don't need to create those lovely bonds of mutual obligation that irritate in the moment and save in the long run. Take us out of ourselves. Give us a sense of perspective. You know, it's hard for a young man to worry too much about his own problems if they're not that great, if he's taking care of elderly people who are dying, which, you know, used to happen to some degree, or at least women used to do it more. So we've had this weird life that's been created for us where we are isolated and lost, and our social bonds have decayed, which means we feel that we have no meaning and no purpose. And... As long as the state continues to spray its fine acidic mist of coercive pseudo-benevolence onto the ties that bind us, we will remain this splendid isolation that is turning us into gods and monsters, into uh, narcissistic, vainglorious monsters or gods who believe they are above the natural causality of the universe, which is that we need friends and family to alleviate the random dangers of risk. And this decay, this this dissolution of our social ties, of our social binds, is in many ways the greatest and ugliest effect of the state on us. And when the state runs out of money to bribe us into our splendid isolation then we will get off our butts and we will get to know our neighbors and we will reconnect in a community. And we'll hate it because it feels like a big, giant imposition on our splendid isolation. And then we'll love it. We'll love it. Because that's our natural habitat. Our natural habitat is a connected tribe. That's what we grew up in. And it is possible, of course... If you win the lottery, that you can get that kind of isolation. But people generally win the lottery and it's disastrous for them and they wish they never had. But 
you can work yourself into splendid isolation by being of service to your tribe to the point where you provide goods and services in the marketplace that people want to pay you enough for that maybe then you can retreat into splendid isolation. But you've only done that because you've been good at servicing the needs of your tribe or some market, some community. We are gods or we are monsters in isolation. And the gods all with a petty narcissism of Tinder and Instagram and am I sexy and did I lose three pounds and how do my cheekbones look today? And, oh, look, here's another 90-minute video of somebody putting on makeup saying, this will make you look like me. No, it won't. And for humanity, isolation leads to the gods and monsters that are two sides of the same coin. Isolation feels like a kind of power because you don't need people and therefore you feel superior to people. But it is a form of paralysis because it cannot last. When the state bribes you with its unfunded liabilities, it can't possibly last. And so all of this splendid isolation that people have burrowed into, playing video games rather than having a purpose, watching movies rather than having a purpose, doing pixels rather than doing good, the splendid isolation that the state has lulled us into thinking that we can live without one another cannot last. And we will adapt enormously quickly to a situation of risk and want within our own tribes. But until then, it is going to, hard, it's going to be hard to feel that we have meaning and or purpose, because we have been isolated into navel-gazing, solipsistic, narcissistic, megalomaniacal, hall of mirrors of her own self-regard navel-gazing, because the state has slain our thirst for community. And we live like eccentric inheritors of other people's wealth, which in a very real way we actually are. And we will remain this isolated and we will remain this in waiting and we will remain this atomized in an unnatural environment called isolation from community. We will remain in this state until we shake off the bribery or the bribery is shaken off us by mathematics and circumstances. And then we will realign and we will reconnect and hopefully we'll remember what happened so we can have our never again moment. And the next time some politico comes trotting along, offering to release us from all the mutual obligations of base tribalism and to give us our splendid isolation and to turn us into the gods and monsters of infinite vanity and self-regard, we will not listen. I think we have good reason not to fear what is coming, but to welcome it as a liberation from the deadly fantasy of dependence on force. Yeah. Um, well, it's a little wonder smart people feel so depressed in the modern world. I mean, that, that longing to have people community it's it's very it's a very difficult thing to do if you're living sort of a bedroom community or small town you may not know anybody 
Well, and normally you would get to know people and they would want to get to know you. It's not necessary anymore. You know, I said in the recent presentation on Rome that when the circumstances, when the, when the surreal circumstances of state power are removed, human beings revert to, we revert to our natural state very easily, very quickly, in a negative way. In a negative way, this happened to the British kids who had lived a couple of generations of relative peace in Western Europe, at least. And then they perfectly adapted to the trench warfare, not in terms of like not having shell shock or anything like that, but they adapted to all of that and, and fought, fought well and, and, and fought with, with courage and determination. So we're just, we're just in this air of coerced unreality, this, this, this fantasy of infinite resources and what happens with infinite resources is infinite isolation. And the people who can see that are viewed as mad by the people who can't. You know, as that old quote from Nietzsche, those who could hear the music. Those who were dancing were thought mad by those who could not hear the music. And so it's like what I've said about male-female relations for years. We can say all we want about men's rights and, and MGTOW and, and uh, masculism and all that kind of stuff. We can say all we want, and it's great to do that and identify the issues. But the reality is that until the state stops drugging everyone into this glorious, horrifying, splendid isolation through the magic counterfeiting of fiat currency. It doesn't matter what we think. It doesn't matter. I mean, you can think all you want about exercise, but if you're kind of chained to a table, it doesn't mean much for most people, right? And most people aren't thinking in terms of principles. They're just responding to the environment that is around them. And until that environment changes, most people are leaves. They follow the way the wind blows. And uh, they won't listen to reason about that the wind is going to change, but when the wind changes, they will adapt to that and they will forget what happened before. And um, it's up to us to try and keep that continuity going. But it's, uh, <laughs> it's a challenge, to put it mildly. So there are reasons to be cautious about what is coming in terms of societal changes, running out of money. But there's also reason to be enormous, as long as you're prepared for it, there's, there's reasons to be enormously optimistic. If you live in a community being torn apart by drug abuse, and you know the drug is going to run out, you certainly do fear the transition of the ending of the drug, but you can also hope for it to happen sooner rather than later. As the old saying goes, if there's to be trouble, let it be in my time that my children may enjoy the peace I win for them. But we can look forward to a drug-free future, although the withdrawal will be painful. It will be healthy in the long run. And if people actually do listen, it doesn't even have to be that long. It can all be done in one to two years. The question is, will people listen? That's up to us and how compellingly we are able to make the case. Uh, yeah, certainly been trying and I won't have any credibility, I'm sure, until something finally does happen. And then you'll be surprised how much you have. Well, thanks very much for the call, Chris. Always great to chat and uh, keep us posted and let's move on to the next call. All right. Up next is Aaron. Aaron wrote in and said, 
I believe the hostility of this year's election cycle, the Black Lives Matter-inspired killing of police, the Islamic terrorist attacks in Europe, have all greatly disturbed some of my personal training clients. Some are elderly, and I am the only person they socialize with regularly. Some seem to be giving up on staying healthy because, quote, America seems to be going to hell. Even though, as we as a nation have greatly improved the efficacy of health care, quality of life, and length of lifespan, we seem to have become horribly regressive with all the social justice warrior groupthink that infects our media, politics, and academia. Many of my older clients are consuming and believing this regressive mainstream media, and I find it harder and harder to counter the narrative with facts. I can't help the suspicion that the mainstream media is deliberately creating a nihilistic view of life for many Americans, particularly those of European descent. I try to help my clients cope with diet and exercise, even martial arts and meditation, but yet the trend continues, and it seems to be accelerating. Is this purely psychological, or does this point to something dysgenic in our DNA? Considering American-slash-European folks, collective history is bold explorers, innovators, and artists who have filled the world with amazing beauty, it would hardly seem credible that nihilism and hard-headed altruism is endemic to our people after only a couple of generations. Is this genetic? If so, how can it be countered? If it is not genetic, are there outside forces at work? That's from Aaron. Hey, Aaron, how you doing? Hey, Steph, it's an honor. Well, thank you. So, your boomer clients feel that that america has just somehow mysteriously gone in the wrong direction do they like yeah. like like they didn't vote for anything they didn't have any particular preferences they didn't guide the culture through their artistic consumption choices or anything just mysteriously things seem to have gone bad yeah it does seem that way it's and i, I do remind them <laughs> i said you know you had more input than me you know i i've only been able to vote for you know only the past couple of elections and I, i've definitely tried to have my say but uh yeah there was yeah no that's uh it's it's tough you know when when blowback happens because of your boomer delusions right yeah oh, it's it's you know it's really it's tough you know when you get the world that you want and you don't want it and then you want to say well i had nothing to do with it it just mysteriously happened yeah, yeah. And I bring so, that I bring that to their attention all the time. I say, look, nothing just happens to you. You are responsible for all your interactions with the world and other people. And I, I use that in my training, and I, and I tell them, if you're not responsible for you, the things you say, the things you do, then you're not really in control of your personhood. And if you're not in control of your personhood, then how can you really say that you can make a credible argument for making a decision on how the world should be? And here's my impression of my experience. For about 35 years, about 30, 35 years I've been into philosophy, right? Yes, sir. So here's my impression of trying to speak philosophy to boomers. Are you ready? <laughs> Shoot. Shut up, Steph. That, that, thank you. Scene. That's the entire thing. That's, that's all I got. Talking to my friends' parents. Talking to teachers. Talking to professors trying to get into academia, trying to get plays written that had some sort of non-communist message in socialist Canada, trying to talk to people about the welfare state, trying to talk to people about the national debt, trying to talk to people about terrible education, 
trying to talk to people about government unions, trying to talk to people about fiat currency, trying to talk to people about multiculturalism and its challenges. Shut up, Steph. (laughs) Yeah, it almost seems like like they're coming out of an echo chamber in which that was being yelled at them, and now they're yelling it at you. And what? Uh, oh, sorry. The boomers. Who was yelling? Shut up! At the boomers. <laughs> Other boomers. There were always people that were saying, "No, this is the wrong idea." Not everybody voted for Bush. Not everybody voted for Clinton. It was just the alleged. No, mis- no. Fuck. Fuck voting for people. They voted with their dollars. They're the ones who kept the mainstream media alive. Indeed, they. Sort you know what the mainstream media has said to me? Shut up, Steph. Yeah. <laughs> and to all my friends. I mean, they're the ones who gave money to these people. Oh, I didn't vote for Bush. Really? Did you tune into the mainstream media when they were showing bombs raining down on the Afghanis and the Iraqis and blowing them all to hell and getting rid of their entire infrastructure, which kept cholera out of their children's lungs? There's the guys who kept the mainstream media alive by consuming the lies. Feed me the lies. Give me the lies. Let me get my group think on. Don't make me think for myself. Yeah, that's very true. And as I mentioned in the email, they're consuming this media today still. And some of them are isolated and some of them have no one else. And I've been through what I do, I've been able to help people reconnect with who they were. And I'm trying to, again, rekindle that fire of, I guess, tribalism for them. The idea of community that you're not alone. You're not atomized. There are people out there that give a crap about you. Here, let me just get you off the couch and get you just to come see me. Some of my clients just want to walk on a treadmill and talk. And they tell me all their fears. And I listen, just actively listen. And when I talk back, they say, you sound like you were born in the wrong decade. I said, no, it's just the fact that I've come to realize a lot of the same worries you have. But let's be responsible for who we are, what we are, and do what we can to fix the situation. Uh, but I've also noticed a trend, too. And uh, this is since I sent the email to you. Uh, as a healthcare professional, I'm to measure them every day. They're, well, not every day, but every, uh, every month uh, on the same day. And sometimes their body fat percentages change in the patterns of the body fat changes, where it's at on the body. And why this is important, Seth, is because their estrogen and testosterone levels are being changed through the foods they're eating, through the products that they're using on their body. Uh, some of them can cause cancer, like the woman that just got ovarian cancer from uh, talcum powder, the baby powder from Johnson & Johnson. The long-term effect on the body this is having is also affecting their brain and the way they think. Yeah, it's, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm having a tough time caring about the health effects of boomers' bad eating choices because th- <laughs> that they're doing to themselves. I care a little bit more about what they did to society as a whole. Oh, I, I agree. I agree. So what I've noticed is that the decay of society, uh, along with the choices that they made, plus the, fel- the health benefits that they're getting from training, is starting to get them to kind of wake up that they can make a proper decision. Um, Excellent. So now what they can do is they can say, hey, sorry, everyone, we really messed up your economy. We did a whole bunch of virtue signaling and assuaged our own bad conscience for things by having the government steal money from our children to give to poor people, which made poor people's lives even worse. So uh, we decided not to do any of that icky, messy, face-to-face, actually help people out 
in a real way kind of charity because, you know, that's complicated and difficult. So what we did was we screamed at the state to go and do the charity for us so we didn't have to do any of that messy stuff ourselves. So we could go and retreat to our condos and our big screen TVs and our vacations and our corner offices. So we got the government to do all the messy stuff in society. Well, we didn't really want to pay the taxes for it ourselves. We wanted to help the poor. We wanted to have all of this uh, uh, great stuff that the government was spending on. But we didn't actually want to pay the taxes for it ourselves because, you know... (laughs) expensive. So what we did was we had the government borrow against the future of our children, if we in fact even bothered to have any children. We had the government borrow against the future of our children so that the government could do all of this stuff so that we wouldn't have to do any of the messy stuff around actually helping people. So as a result of this enlightenment of realizing that we basically sold off our children's futures in order to assage our moral conscience in the moment, while not actually even achieving any damn good in the world, we have all decided collectively, us boomers, that, you know, it's really pretty unfair to take our old age pensions and our prescription health care packages and our, quote, free health care because it's not free. We never paid for it. We simply borrowed against our children's futures. We didn't oppose the state. And we've been told, you know, since the 1960s, since the libertarian movement, since Murray Rothbard, since Ayn Rand, we've heard and been told of the dangers of surrendering our conscience to the power of the state. Well, we put our, sh- our kids in shitty schools because we didn't want to confront the teachers unions. And we gave our lives over to shitty doctors because we didn't want to confront state medicine. And we decided to shit all over Barry Goldwater because he said, maybe we should have a smaller government. And we decided to attack anyone who talked about race and IQ as a racist. And now look what's happened. Everyone's just getting along so well. So until the boomers actually step up and say, hey, we really messed things up. We really ignored science. We really rejected reality. We really attacked and viciously undercut everyone who brought arguments that pricked our moral vanity. Until they are now saying, well, the world just seems to be going in a strange and bad way. And I'm like, where's my money? Where's my money, you young bitches? Kneel down and give me some good old-fashioned on-your-knees pleasuring with that fiat currency. Come on, get down there and work it. Because that's, um, it's all nonsense otherwise. I don't care what they say or how bad they feel. What I care is for them to say, hey, (laughs) we really, really didn't listen. You know, when I was uh, a young man and... 19 or 20, I went to university and I brought a lot of free market ideas to university. Now, all of the professors, well, at best, they grudgingly tolerated my eternal hand up and uh, counter argument to some of the nonsense they were putting forward. Now, those people are old now. They're retired. And they worked very hard to counter some very intelligent arguments that I was bringing to the table. And now, if they say, well, the world seems to be going mysteriously in a bad way. I don't know what's happening. Things seem to be falling apart. It's like, yeah, guess what? They fall apart because you pushed them over, didn't you? You didn't listen to reason. You didn't listen to evidence. You just conformed and went along with and just pretended to be nice when all you were doing was escalating the use of force in society by giving more and more power to the state. The state, that lovely friend of all that is free and good, noble and virtuous throughout human history. And remember, I took history a lot in college. So these are the people who had the least capacity, least responsibility and least excuse to not understand the actual nature of the state itself. 
So, yeah, when those people get old. And listen, I talked to hundreds and hundreds of people before I even had this show. And I've been running this show for 10 years. Actually, I just passed my 10-year anniversary. I think it was August 7th or so, 2006, that I first joined YouTube. Just blew right past that 10-year anniversary. Ah, Oh, well, it's that old saying that at some point you have to stop worrying about your birthdays. And for most people, that's about the age of 12. So, so yeah, these people, they, they wanted to have the warfare welfare state, right? They, they wanted to have uh, all their moral conscience. Oh, we're going to take care of the poor. We're going to give more money and power to the state. Well, we're not actually going to pay for it ourselves. We're just going to pass the bill down the line. Yeah, check. Uh, completely agree. Yeah, it's like and the if I sell my daughter into slavery, thinking. I don't get to complain that her adult life doesn't seem to be perfect for some mysterious reason. Yeah, and I agree. And and last other- thing I'll say, and then I'll last thing I'll say, and then I'll right, because this is what happens to old people. See, when you're around old people, they 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 milk those ancient baggy titties quite a bit. I'm just telling you, they do, because then that now they're old, so now they get to play the helpless card. We're old. We're helpless. I don't know what happened to the world. It was fine when I was younger, and then mysteriously things just went bad as I got older. Give me the money. <laughs> right? I mean, but these I, – I, I, continuity is key. Continuity is key. I remember these people from 30 years ago, right? When they were 30 or 40 and I was coming into college and they were taking big, long, languid intellectual dumps all over my shiny, silvery <laughs> free market views. So now that they're old, I don't see how, like, one of my favorite plays is King Lear. I played uh, Cornwall, the evil eye gouger, in a production of King Lear when I was at the National Theater School. And King Lear is a great play because there's this mad, vain old man who needs to learn humility. And he does. He learns humility. And he apologizes. Forgive me, for I am a fond, foolish old man. He finally says to the daughter that he wronged. Now he has to go through some storms, some bloodshed, being deposed from king, lots of it. But he does eventually learn some humility from the vanity of his age. Now, I am not old enough to play the helpless card. I hope I never will. But this is what happens is uh, people shit all over the aspirations and hopes and rationality and consistency and correctness of the young. When they have the power, right? The professors had the power. The media had the power. The, um, arti- the artistic directors had the power. The people at the National Theater School had the power. So they could, hey, if it ain't Bertolt Brecht promoting communism, I don't want to hear about it. And so they had all this power. And when they had that power, they used that power to keep good people out of whatever enclave they were in, right? So the people who were old now, they're the same people who would never read a right-wing reporter or a conservative reporter. Oh, gross. So horrifying, so horrible. Let's get him fired. Let's, as soon as he shows his face in the paper, let's make sure we don't buy that paper. We organize a boycott. We get him fired. So we get our nice, treacly, drip, drip, soma syrup of leftist, collectivist, sentimental goo crap that we can lap up at the expense of the future. So yes, When they get old, they can be all helpless and confused and what happened because I'm old. But I remember. I don't. I mean, oh, you got Alzheimer's, fine. You know, I get it. But that's not the majority of the old. Well, I also have noticed. And they're they're the richest generation in human history. 
and you try prying back some money that they stole from the young, you try prying back some money from their wizened crypt keeper, gonads of the young, and gold-gripping claws. And then you will see the nature of the old very quickly. If you come into politics, let's say, and you propose a cut in old age pensions because there ain't no money and it ain't fair for the young people who never had a chance to vote to pay for the old people, ooh, ooh. You try taking anything away from old people in society because they were responsible for the national debt because they wanted more and more and more and didn't want to pay for it. You try taking one thin dime away from the old people and then you'll see, my friends, they're really not so helpless after all. They're like this wrinkly, liver-spotted mafia that will come charging down the highways of political power and mess you up. What is it they say about Social Security? It's the third rail of American politics. You touch it, you die. They're not kidding. Politically, these people will sever your head. So this old, I'm so helpless, I'm so, hey, someone touching my social security, get them boys, take them down, string them up. Ain't so helpless then, are they? No, no, I I definitely, I definitely agree. Um, the, the worrisome thing for me, as I see this, it's kind of a two part thought process and it's all of that combined with what I'm seeing now in a lot of the young folks who are more concerned about spending money on tattoos than taking care of their health. And they're also consuming this SJW media, and they're the ones out there doing most of the violence. They're the ones out there doing most of the chaos. I love it when they call it anarchy on the television. I'm like, that's not anarchy. Anarchy is lack of state. This is chaos, people. (laughs) The Joker says best. Just just criminality. But they they want to associate criminality with statelessness because that's the solution. Statelessness, so they want to scare people away from it, right? Yes, of course. Anything you want to... uh, uh, you know, you know, make it make it you know marginal. You vilify it, and if you can vilify it, you can do that. So, um, I'm noticing that when I'm doing measurements, even for my young folks, I'm seeing body fat percentages. In we're also supposed to pay attention to where the body fat's at. I'm seeing female body fat patterns on young men, and I'm wondering why. <laughs> really, you're you're 20 something years old. You're 37 percent body fat, but if I Honestly, put a little makeup on you. You look like a woman. Why is this happening to you? 37% body fat. So if the temperature goes above about 30 degrees, they start to sweat Crisco at that point, right? Don't give me a hug. I'll squirt through the ceiling. And isn't – I think the American military is saying that 75% of young men are completely unfit. Yes, and that is another issue that I'm seeing. Precisely. They're not – they're going to huff and wheeze and puff and wheeze. I have have exercise-induced asthma. And I'm like, you know what? That really wasn't very common. 50 years ago. Okay, can we go a little farther? What else do you have a problem with? Um, I heard all the time, do you sit all the time? Yeah, well, you need to get off your butt and move around. That's the simplest thing. And I am probably the hardest person to have an assessment from because I will really tear you up by looking at what you are, breaking it down, but I'm doing it with compassion. I'm doing it with the point of saying, look, if you don't do something now, you're never going to change. And if you never change, this is never going to change for you. And I, I make sure that they are responsible for who they are and understand, you know, non-aggression principle. I even talk about that stuff. How do I talk about RNK theory with my, with my clients? Say, look, you're a rabbit right now. You have wolf genes. We just need to turn them back on. 
How's that sound? You say that to a 32-year-old guy who's like 45% body fat and his wife has already left and all, all, all the other issues he could possibly have, his eyes light up. What? Being competitive again? Yes. Being competitive again. Feeling younger again. And then I talk to them about their testosterone levels and get a check. Talking about why they should give a damn. And these are people like four or five years younger or older than me. They're not even boomers. And I'm like, there is this cause and effect here. We need to talk about that. We need to be honest with ourselves that, you know, well, how you, you talked about the black market of male achievement is video games. And that's very true. Why? We don't have anything to go out and like, hey, let's go and bash something over the head, drag it back to the cave, skin it, meet it. We don't, we don't do that anymore. But we have the urge. We're all Vikings inside is basically how I express my feelings to these people. And they like that. Um, but they're, con- they're ingesting the same media that the boomers are. And some of them are just, they run crazy with it. Um, I watch a lot of Milo. I watch a lot of you. I watch a lot of all, all the same stuff that I, all the people that you've ever had on your show. I go, into, I go to their websites and support them. I actually pay attention to what they say. Oh, little fantastic. Uh, hell, you just had, uh, Colin Flannery on. That was a great, great, great presentation. But, uh, I talked to them about this reality. And that if they don't do something and they're not happy about how things are going and how they're seeing things in the need in the media, and they're, they're watching the election cycle and they're terrified, even at 32 years old, 20 to 22 year olds tell me like, I don't think I should bother getting a job because what if it's all these what ifs? I'm like, well, you get a job, follow your passion. Don't curl up in an ass ball. Let's quote a jerky boy uh, joke, but, uh, you know, don't just curl up in a fetal position and say there's no point in trying. And. I'm noticing that that's happening with them. And these are the same people that you'll also see. They find a cause and then they start protesting for it. Like Bernie Sanders. You know, it's the same thing. I'm like, did you really think about his policies? Did you really think about what he was saying? It was a further continuance of all the things you say you hate about what's going on right now with America. Well, men are turning to men are turning into women. Yeah. But that's that's exactly what you would expect from our selection. Sexual dimorphism diminishes when, uh, with our selected behaviors. You can't tell a male rabbit from a female rabbit unless you look up and check the diddlies. But you can pretty much tell a lion from a lioness. I mean, uh, so sexual dimorphism collapses and and you get this metrosexual, you know, pluck your eyebrows. And and, um, like I was at, I I took uh, my daughter and a friend of hers to um, uh, a lake the other day. It's a quarry lake for swimming. It's great. And there were these guys. And, you know, some of the guys, you know, the barrel-shaped guys, you know. <laughs> like, it's like, I don't know, if you ever see a sit-up machine, you'll assume it's an enemy robot out to, 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 to disembowel you. I guess it kind of is. But um, this, uh, there, there were these guys down there who, you know, they've got muscles and so on. But, you know, they've got girly pompadours and they're hairless. Yep. And it's like. I don't think that's particularly masculine. Um, I mean, what what I want to do is throw Mike Sonovich's podcast or Guerrilla Mindset book on and just watch hair sprout out from their nipples because I think that's pretty much his his effect, you know, in terms of uh, <laughs> agreed, re-energizing agreed. masculine energy. But um, yeah, yeah he's, so he's he's a big guy and he's hairy and he he does represent this neo masculinity. I, I pay attention to him as well and I listen to all that stuff. The Roosh controversy and the whole neo-masculinity and i tell them i want you to take it for real don't be pretend don't be fake don't walk away from women don't 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 be the whole MGTOW thing it bothers me because i'm like if you do that you won't have babies and you don't have babies society collapses at least for us we do not realize that and 
they're, they're well, so I don't think it's up. escaped that anybody with half a brain can recognize that the societies where there's more sexual dimorphism are the societies that are spreading and flourishing throughout the world. And the mm-hmm. societies where there's less sexual dimorphism, which is becoming more R-selected, um, those societies are collapsing around the world. Birth rates are collapsing. Economies are collapsing. A sense of, of, of boundaries, of borders, of cultural respect, cultural self-respect, all of that is collapsing. And yes. uh, so this, Scary. of course, was not exactly the promise of feminism, but the reality of all of that. But with these guys, the fact that they've got body fat that makes them more like women, well, that's they've been taught that masculinity is bad. So all, all men are dumb, uh, all men are brutes, all men are rapists, all men are violent, all masculinity is patriarchy and oppression. Yep. Yep, that's what Why I would you want thing. to be that if that's what you believe? Yeah, and I, I tell them, look, I said, you know, all that stuff is lies. All that stuff is actually just negative content to get you to hate yourself, and for whatever reason. I don't, I don't think that it's the fault of the original feminist movement. I think that third-wave feminism saying that clapping is evil because it sounds too masculine or replicates the sound of sex is what one of them actually said in one of their seminars. So use jazz hands, everybody. Just shake your hand. <laughs> replicates the sound of sex? Yes, what she said. I, I guess if your sex involves spanking, that may well be the case. But if your sex sounds like applause, you're doing it with too many people and you're doing it the wrong way and you're doing it with the wrong appendage. Other than that, good job. <laughs> but no, it, it's all about sexual market value. I mean, the reason right. that um, if, if you break men, then men will end up settling for trashier women. Yeah, for less. If you break the self-esteem of men, men won't look for heroines. They'll look for whores. They'll look for trashy, broken people. And so trashy, broken people want to break the spirit of other people so that their sexual market value goes up. It's not hugely complicated. Precisely. You just have to resist it. As it's got nothing to do with ideology and just everything to do with sexual market value positioning. Well, that also segues into the body positive movement. I made a video on YouTube myself. I have a channel, and I said, look, this whole body positive movement this haze healthy at any size this is bullshit telling you that it's okay to be 400 pounds telling you it's okay to be 350 and you have pain in your feet and your hips and your back all the time but you got a lot of makeup on your face and you got nice clothes on you must be happy i'm like this is not healthy this is not right this is incorrect and this is irresponsible i'm sorry i didn't mean to swear but that's just truth it's just irresponsible and i, I tell them this needs to be purged from our society this type of thought. This is SJ. Well, but it would be if people had to pay for their own damn health care. I'm body positive. I'm body positive that my health care bill this year will be $12,000. Right. Yeah. You're also diabetes positive, too. You're also dialysis positive, too. And by the way, your bank account is in the negative because you couldn't afford your premiums. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I was listening, I was listening to this woman a while back ago in Canada who was complaining about the fact that she had to spend $2,000 a month just to stay alive. Because she had diabetes. Now this woman was obese. Mm-hmm. And, and, then she's like, well, I'd love to finish the story, but I got to go out for a smoke. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I don't laugh because it's so insane. But sure, I mean, if, if people have to pay for, hey, be as body positive as you want. Just keep your damn hands out of my wallet. That's all. And I try to tell them to look, the whole concept of body positivism is not really the size of your physical being. They're talking about your emotional your emotional well-being, how you feel about yourself. I want you to feel good about yourself, but that's what's behind the eyes. It's not what's outside. You need to change the outside because it is not acceptable. I tell them that. Fat people, look, look fat people are unappealing. Yes. For, for most. For most people, unless you have some sort of chubby chaser fetish, 
fat people are unappealing sexually to most people. Now, of course, everybody has the choice. You can say, okay, well, I'm fat, so I should stop being fat, so I become more attractive because I want to raise my sexual market value. Or you can verbally abuse people who say that you're unattractive because you're fat and hopefully shame them into finding you somehow sexually attractive rather than you changing, right? Had that very conversation with another client. Yeah, so, and that's a girl approach. Yep. That's a girly approach. That's the reason why it comes out of feminism and not out of men's rights. Yeah. And the reason it comes out of feminism is that women are more used to manipulating people, whereas men are more used to controlling reality, right? Manipulating people versus controlling reality. Now, a man is fat. He doesn't sort of sit there and shame people into trying to find him attractive. He's like, he either lives with being fat or he loses weight because he's into controlling reality. Whereas a woman's general, in general, her approach is to say, well, I'm going to manipulate people rather than try and control reality because evolutionarily speaking, that's kind of what I'm adapted to do. Yeah, so this manipulation of people rather than a control of reality, well, this is where the entire media has gone. This is where the entire artistic world has gone. I'm just doing this review of Zootopia where, where it was considered a virtue to say to a baby fox, oh, if you love, you love elephants and you want to grow up to be an elephant, you can totally do that. <laughs> I mean, that's insane. That's not helping him. Okay, so it's we're not, being like, That's not helping him being that unreal. But for a woman, for a female-focused and, and female-centric film – that kind of makes sense in a way because, you know, women can get away with a lot. Like funny people can get away with a lot because they're pretty <laughs> when they're young, right? So, yeah, people will tell them a lot of lies because they want to get into their panties, right? I understand that. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just the way of the world. But the idea that it has something to do with reality, uh, it's crazy. And I think I understand what you're saying is that men, when they, they want to deal with reality, it's like, okay, honey, I understand that you're upset that dinner has been burned, but the house is on fire. Can we leave now? Maybe. And she's like, well, this is a reality situation. You're upset that you burned the dinner, but the house is burning down. Let's get out. You know, men were programmed to actually fight the real wolf outside the door. And that the figurative oogie boogie wolf that might come in if you don't have Susie's approval. So she'll watch your baby while you go and use the restroom or get a night's sleep. Women evolved to be more socially lubricated with each other and to not like friction. They like to be more communal and they like to have less talk of bad things. And Whereas men, we like to taunt each other and we compete with each other physically. And uh, that's just the difference ways we actually diverged. You know, we have to get men have to get resources from reality to win women. Right. So we have to deal with reality because that's where we get the resources we use to woo and win women. Correct. So we can't go manipulate some bear into having a heart attack lying down and giving us a meal. I mean, we yes. can't sort of bully him and shame him. You know I'm hungry. You know you've got calories under that selfish fur of yours. So I need you to just bash your own head against a tree so I can be the big warrior. Go home and get me some poontang. Yeah, I mean, that's wanna... not – we don't <laughs> – we, men got to go out there with actual spears and actual traps and try not to trip and fall and try not to get mauled by the bear and try not to get some other guy's spear through the head as he throws it wildly. And, and you know, we got to actually go out and deal with reality. Yeah. Whereas women can, you know, put on makeup and shake their asses and get resources, evolutionarily speaking, right? So it's a it's a seller's market for women when it comes to youth and fertility because eggs are rare and sperm are common. Just anytime you're confused about men and women, eggs are rare, sperm are common. That's all you need to know. The rest of it is all nonsense. That's why men are cannon fodder. And that's the reason why you keep women home, protect the eggs. You know? um, right. And, and this is why in, in the 19... 50s, you had this father knows best patriarchy. Why? 
because men were scarce after two world wars. So men are scarce and therefore men can set the terms. When you get the baby boomer generation and men suddenly become common again, hey, look, feminism, and we can shit all over men all we want because there's communist dirt, plus we've replaced them with the power of the state anyway, so we don't really need them. Nothing to do with ideology all to do with scarcity, supply, demand, coercion, and that's it. All the ideology is just shadows cast by various statues of state worship and and uh, supply and demand and sexual market value. The ideologies are all complete bullshit. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, the fact that we've got this perspective now where it's like, well, I don't care what your instincts are. I'm going to talk you in and out of stuff and shame you for stuff and blah, blah, blah. Of course, fat people are unattractive in the modern world. Because it indicates a lack of self-control, a lack of willpower. Uh, it indicates that um, you're going to be more prone to disease, to illness. You're going to be a less fit mother because you're not going to be healthy enough to run after your kids. Plus, fat in a woman lowers fertility, lowers the chance of getting pregnant. It is a direct repudiation of everything that sexual market value is designed to help us pursue, which is fertility and strength and good genetics. So because if you're fat, either you lack willpower or you have some genetic disorder, some thyroid problem or whatever. I'm big boned. <laughs> Dennis Theory says, no, dinosaurs are big boned. You're just fat. And so, um, but yeah, this idea that we can just talk human beings uh, in and out of, um, you know, hundreds of millennia developed sexual market value attenuation. Well, that's exactly the same as the Zootopia movie where, the predators don't eat anyone anymore because they've just been talked out of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Delusion. Yeah, talk it's a lion out of. Good luck. Go out. To, go out to Africa and try shaming a lion into not eating you <laughs> because yeah. it should be nicer to you. Well, men can't do that. Now, but women can can manipulate men, but men have to manipulate reality, which means they have to be more empirical. Right, and it's delusion to think otherwise, and I agree with that. And I try to approach this with this uh, perspective, like I am truly here to help you. And I show them pictures of me when I still was heavy. I was 352 pounds at my biggest because I decided to pursue wealth. I went after wealth and I sat on my ass and I did all the wrong things and I ballooned up. And then after I quit that job, I actually quit it for the sake of losing it. Then I dropped it and said, you know what? I did so well at this. Why don't I do this? I actually shifted gears and became a, a fit coach. And so when I hear someone tell me I'm addicted to so-and-so, I said, didn't stop me. I, I I just can't stand not eating carbs. It didn't stop me. I don't like exercise. I hated it when I first started. Now I love doing it. Hey, want to try this workout with me? Oh, it's too hard. And then I, I let them know, when you are sitting down with me and you're talking to me, I'm the third ranked trainer in my area in three cities. You have to actually get the privilege of training with me, not the other way around. I'm, you're not hiring me. I want to find out whether or not you're worth my time. And I give them a challenge. You have so so long to do such and such. If you haven't done that, I'm not going to train you. I don't care about your money because the wealth is not the problem. And I let them know that without your health, you don't have any wealth. Imagine how ironic it would be to spend like 65 years collecting wealth. And then when you retire, spending all of it on doctors and hospitals because you're so unhealthy. And that makes some people click. It makes other people say, shit, hmm. And I realize whether or not they're worth the challenge. I was able to defeat my own demons. They can defeat theirs. And it's about unpacking a lot of this crap they bring with them and get them to realize this. So I'm, I'm trying to share the, the lessons that I'm learning from your videos. and say, look, here's this video. Watch it. This will teach you a whole lot. And then I make my own video presentation on some of the theories that you talked about to give them another avenue. And it's working. Um, they're listening. I got people that are, you know, avid 
Democrats, and they're even talking about how they don't even trust their own candidacy uh, right now. And the presidential race, because I've been very factual with them, very upfront with them, very, uh, you know, blunt and like, hey, look, here's the reality of the situation. And it's helped. And um, your previous caller, can I comment on that? Is that legit? Are you okay with that? Uh, he said, yes, did, I'm with me. He didn't say, he was like, I don't have any purpose. I don't have any meaning in my life. And I, you know, how many times I've heard that from people, men his age, maybe even younger, a little older. I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you? Of course you have purpose in your life. What are you doing with yourself? And it's just like he said, get up, go to work, go home, get up, go to work, go home. I'm like, you made that choice. You're choosing to do this. You don't have to do that. I've actually had clients. I've told them, quit your job. Quit your job. I don't care that you can't continue to pay for the programming with me. Quit your job. And when you get a better one that makes you happy, then you come back to me. And they do. One woman retired because I told her, look, the job is killing you. You love music, but stop what you're doing and do something better. She quit the job. She retired and she opened her own music store. <laughs> so here she is happy. And I'm like, this is just having the courage, which I think is what your overall message was to the previous caller. Have the courage to make the change. And of course, tell people about what's going on, but prepare, but don't despair. It's just a phase. It's something you can get through. The only guarantee is you're not going to survive life because there is an expiration date on that, but uh, you ain't going to survive it. Um, but do the best you possibly can. I don't mean to try to sound sappy. I am trying to be legitimate. I am trying to be genuine with these people and let them know you're not alone. You're not an atom. There is a community out there. You just got to want it again. And your previous call actually was perfect lead up to this because it's exactly what they're, what everyone else is saying. He's parroting exactly the same things that I hear every day from people that come into my facility every day. And they need to understand that they're responsible for who they are and where they are in life. If they don't understand that, then they'll never make any right decisions to change anything. They'll become the next wave of the next wave of boomers making more decisions to damn even more children in the future to enslavement through debt. There's this weird thing that I see as well, which is yeah, so it's almost like I I feel like the world is divided into two types of people people who understand sugar and people who don't. Because <laughs> everywhere I go, I see parents handing children ridiculous things to eat and drink. Like, ridiculous things. There is no child who's not an athlete who needs Gatorade, for God's sake. <laughs> or yeah. what they call vitamin water, okay, which is like, what, 40 grams of sugar or some, some damn number. It's it's insane, right? And at the beach, this kid is, is like slurping on some, like a big vat of orangeade, and, and the kid is fat, it's changing yeah. their biology. It's changing their bacteria. It's changing like their gut bacteria. It's changing the whole damn thing. And what that means is when they grow up, they've got to hang around with other fat people, all reinforcing each other's choices. Two-thirds of people in Britain, overweight or obese. Yeah, but they say and they, they it has to do, saying it's a sports drink. It's a sports drink. It's healthy. It's healthy. Not for you. It's for me. It's for a guy like me that lifts weights and deadlifts 225 pounds. It's a guy like me yeah. <laughs> that does tire The, the key word there is sports. Yeah. <laughs> Building a sandcastle is not a sport. <laughs> Maybe Looking for muscles in, in a lake is not a sport. Okay, fine. If the kid's benching, sure. But they're not because they shouldn't be. I think that's – or cereal. People yeah. will give cereal to their children in the morning thinking – it's not dessert. No, no, no. Sugar in cereal is pretty much equivalent to dessert. Yeah. Cereal, I mean, with some few exceptions. 
and you can look for those. But cereal, especially when you pour, you know, some good old lactose sugared milk into it, cereal is dessert. And like, and and look, muffin, muffin is cake. It's just cake. Stop calling it muffin. It's cake. That's all it is. I don't care what's in it. It's cake. Yeah, so if you don't have muffin for breakfast, you might as well just roll out a carrot cake and face plant into it. Yes, indeed, indeed. And I, I never serve any of that garbage to my children. They eat exactly the way that I eat. And uh, they, they're much healthier for it. I mean, my, everyone that sees them are like, wow, your kids are in great shape. I'm like, well, they don't go to the gym or work out, but I make sure they don't spend all their time sitting on their ass on electronics, which is causing people's health problems as well. Sitting is the new smoking. You even said it in a video. I was like, yeah, that's true. That's what we talk about in the fitness arena all the time. We read articles and share articles with each other, all the new stuff. Uh, Idea Fit is this uh, website that I'm a member of that you, anybody can go to. And they actually have seminars there where they're talking about latest technologies and latest findings and exercise. I mean, stuff like dispelling the myth of having to keep your feet perfectly parallel when you squat to also, by the way, this food actually raises your testosterone naturally. Oh, by the way, this food will actually kill you in the long run. They've discovered uh, so many things just by paying attention. And if we don't have the courage to talk about these new findings, regardless of how uh, politically incorrect they might be, uh, especially they reveal HBD, uh, human biodiversity. It's it's like, don't be afraid to talk about this stuff. And oh, I you mean like sort of how um, Chinese and and Korean and Japanese people they don't gather fat. It's hard. This is one of the reasons why sumo wrestling is so extraordinary in Japan. Is it's hard to, you know, I remember I had a. Um, a friend, a Japanese friend, and and she said, well, you know, Jap- we don't sit down and just eat a bag of chips, you know, <laughs> that's just gross, right? And there is part of that, but it's also, it's hard to accumulate fat on uh, sort of an East Asian body or South Asian body, whereas black people, uh, it's easier, a lot easier to accumulate fat for various sort of biological reasons, and that's important. But another thing, too, is that, you know, feminism has something to answer for as well, as does the state, because when women went out to work, guess what? They ain't going out and getting ingredients and making food from scratch. They got to grab stuff that's been frozen, that's been turned into cardboard, and it tastes like crap. And so what happens when stuff tastes like crap? You got to add one or two things, and usually it's both. You got to add sugar, and you got to add fat, because it's not made from scratch. And, you know, my wife makes food from scratch. She's fantastic that way. And... um, we don't eat that much stuff that comes, you know, you know, the old thing, like don't ever shop in the middle of the grocery store. All this, like you roam around the end, like, you know, the rings of Saturn, dancing on the rings of Saturn, you're around the edge of the, yeah, we're growing our own vegetables and all this kind of stuff. And it's fantastic. But, you know, you, you drive women out to work and you've got to get shitty frozen boyardee food to feed your kids. And, and for some reason when, I don't know exactly, maybe you've got some thoughts about this, but when women go to work, they become very paranoid about the neighborhood. That this seems to be like this one of these dominoes that goes down that I've sort of noticed over the years, which is when women go to work, they're no longer part of their neighborhood. They no longer know their neighbors. It becomes these bedroom communities where nobody's around during the day. And this plus, you know, diversity and all this kind of stuff, which just kills social trust and destroys neighborhoods and destroys communities left, right, and center. So when women go to work... Kids don't get to roam the neighborhood the way that they used to because women aren't collectively knowledgeable about the neighbors and the neighborhood and with diversity, it makes it even worse. So diversity plus feminism means that kids are no longer free to roam the neighborhoods the way that I was when I was a kid. When I was a kid, it was basically from the age of, I don't know, five or six, go out into the neighborhood. And my mom mom had this big old cowbell. She'd lean out the little apartment window 
but they never opened much. But she'd sort of wedge her arm out and clang, clang, clang. Like, oh, I guess it's I guess it's schnitzel time because my mother's German. But um, that was like the sign to come in. I guess in for a lot of people, it's like when the street lines come on, you got to come home. But it was just go out, kids, and you know. I mean, I guess she worked, but that was the ethic, and maybe it's the ethic she inherited from her own mom. But now it's this, even though kids are safer than they've ever been before, there's this weird paranoia about neighborhoods. And maybe it's because women are working and not knowing the neighbors, or maybe it's diversity. I don't know what it is. But now it's like kids got to stay home. Stay where I can see you. Stay in the driveway. You can't do much in a driveway. It's not that much fun. If my only choice was to stay in or go play in the driveway, not that we had a driveway. We lived in an apartment building. Hey, you, you, would, you, would you really like to get a great game going on a hot, tiny piece of tarmac? Does that sound like fun to you? It's like, nope, that pretty much sounds like torture to me. So now what do people do? Well, they don't want their kids out there roaming about. And the fewer parents who let their kids roam about the less fun it is for any, you don't want to be the only kid roaming about the neighborhood, you know? It's like, that's no good. Because it's like, I think I'm going to go out to play. Well, when I was a kid, you'd go out to play and there would be six million kids around. And you could always find someone that you could get a game going with. And there was this glorious anarchy of spontaneous organization called childhood. And um, that was something that you know, is incomprehensible, I think, to a lot of younger people. And uh, I know I was just reading about this university that had to expand its counseling program because the kids were so stressed about everything and they had to hire new counselors because they're basically teaching children how to be an adult these days when they get to university because they've never experienced any kind of spontaneous self-organization or independence or any of this kind of stuff. So when I was a kid, you'd head outside and there'd be six million kids you could go play with. And yeah, maybe you liked some, maybe you didn't like some, but there'd always be something that you could do, some kind of game that you could get going that you would spontaneously self-organize. So for me, the idea that society could self spontaneously self-organize is like, yep, if I could do it when I was six or seven, I'm pretty sure adults could do it when they're 25. So uh, now with, with feminism, with diversity, with I don't know, whatever X factor is going on, even though kids are safer now, the moms in particular don't want the children going out and just roaming around the neighborhood. You're going to get abducted. You're going to get hit by a car. You're going to blah, 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 right? And so now yeah. they've got to keep the kids home. Well, how do you keep the kids home? You shove them in front of a screen. And you shove them in front of a screen, they're just sitting around. Yeah, you're and so this, this, yeah this paranoia about uh, childhood, oh, desperate terror about childhood of any kind has – raised a, I think, a very fragile neurotic, you know, social justice warriors and the relationship between social justice warriors and kids who went to daycare, I think is pretty, pretty strong. Yeah, and strong. Um, yeah, and the fact that, you know, I mean, I got my first job when I was 11 or 12. And I, I got my first paid job when I was nine or 10. I got my first job when I was 11 or 12 and working ever since um, went out and just have no, we had no money. You know, maybe one guy would have a ball. But basically, I mean, we'd be making forts in the woods, we'd be getting sticks and playing war. We'd yep. be playing um, what used to be called Red Rover. Uh, you know, Red yep. Rover, Red Rover, we call a certain person over and you just, it was all just spontaneous self-organization with no money. And now every time you want to get something going, it's got to be a play date. It's everyone's got to be around. You got to drive kids somewhere. You got to take them to Chuck E. Cheese and drop 50 bucks. You got, it's all not at all spontaneous self-organization. And the thousands of hours as a kid that you spend organizing play with no money out in the natural world, none of that really exists that much anymore. That's right. And there's um, to be a safe space for it. Really fragile. 
Sorry? It, it doesn't seem to be a safe space for it. And there's that word, save, that phrase, safe space. What, they, they, they don't have a safe space at home. This is what's happened, in my opinion, based on what I've seen. The atomization of the family, with the third stage feminism movement where women don't really need men, they are married to the state, not to the man. They can dump them over they want to, get infinite resources from the great daddy of the state to put in a more geo-rooted <clears throat> way. Um, the whole concept of that has caused this tension in the home, and then people have become disposable, and well, children also seem to become disposable too, instead of taking the time to consider that. But then there's this backlash in the mind, I think, of many mothers who say, ooh, I've been so remiss in my duties as a mom, and I'm working instead of staying home with them. I'm going to be overprotective in the whole outside and go and play. So now the kids don't do it. I used to play outside too. I would go outside from the time I got home from school after homework and stay there until the sun went down and have someone scream in my name and I come running and they say, okay, time for dinner. That was normal. Playing outside, uh, climbing trees, uh, doing Red Rover and clotheslining your best friend and laughing your ass off as he gasps and wheezes and chokes and tries to come back to life. Yeah, that was fun. It was great playing Army Man. I mean, all that stuff. It was fantastic, but you just don't see the kids doing it anymore. And if you do see them outside in the group, they're on a cell phone, sitting around texting each other or looking at the internet or YouTube, or they're walking and they're playing Pokemon Go. It's it's not real childhood. It's not real. It's being babysitted through a phone, and your mom can call you at any time on the phone and say, where are you, whatnot. I understand that. It's an overcompensation because of the atomization of the family. That's my opinion. Now, also, kids in daycare grew up to be social justice warriors. Yes, I was in daycare for a while when I was younger. Um, and the reality is, is that those places sometimes were really, really, really caustic environments for children, um, particularly kids with disabilities. It was, it was not, not a good environment at all. Uh, but once you got on up to be on your own, it was great. So there was that. And then there was also the whole concept that if the world is atomizing us, we don't have a sense of community. Therefore, you don't really trust your neighbors and you don't really know them really well. You might see them on holidays or coming in out when they're in their groceries. I make it a point to walk over and say hello and invite them over to my place to do the same. I know the name of every neighbor on my block, every single one. I've been in their homes at least once. One of my neighbors, we grill together and talk together. And they're, they're older than me. They're, they're in their 50s. And we talk to them and they're saying, damn, you sound like you're me. And I'm like, yeah. We go out and fish on the fishing dock together. And he said, this is amazing. There's a young person out there that has a head on their shoulders. I'm not young. I see young people. It's 20-year-old people. That's young. They're like, they've forgotten that those people exist. Only except their own kids. I'm like, well, if you send them to school, they're going to be exposed to this social justice warrior crap. And they say, yeah, what is this safe space I keep hearing about? Their kids are coming home and saying, I need a safe space from this conversation, Dad. What? I just want to tell you what's going on and why me and your mom are voting for Trump or whatever it would be. They're actually saying these things to them. So you're sending them to these state mills where they're getting their minds mushed. They're not studying what they should be studying. And you're no surprise, more atomization. And some of these kids, when they're at home, decide that, well, they're going to get a useless degree and I don't know, in European poetry through feminist philosophy or some shit and they come home and they have to stay at home because they have a bunch of college debt and they have a degree they can't do anything with and their parents just don't get them so they go work at starbucks and next thing you know it's tattoos and nose piercings and holding up signs at rallies it's it's ridiculous and this is what i'm seeing then i'm seeing them come in and saying i just got out of college i need to i need to get my life together yeah let's get the weight off of you they have college weight they call it college weight not baby weight the college weight the fresh fresh 15 it was called when i was younger you, you put on 15 pounds your first uh first uh, semester 
yeah. of a college. Um, not me, because <laughs> I was broke, but for a lot of people. Ramen noodles more. can't pack it on, right? Yeah, you can't <laughs> pack it on with the ramen noodles, especially if you're still working out. So, um, All right, listen, I got to move on to the next caller, but I appreciate what we're talking about. It's, it's, a, it's a big topic, and you know we can talk to a blue in the face, but basically okay. stuff's going to have to change in society. And uh, people will then change at the moment. You know, we become domesticated animals on the farm of the state. We are domesticated livestock on the farm of the state and livestock get fat. And um, that will change when we no longer domesticate the livestock, but have regained the power of our own individuality again, when we've regained the power of our own decision making to the point where like the, the, the media has become so girly and so hysterical or a society that a guy like Trump comes along and everybody completely freaks out. It's yes. wait, a politician who's not captive to female voting patterns. Oh my God. A politician who's not, who's displaying some masculine energy, some sense of borders, some sense of nationalism, some sense of in-group preference. Oh my God. He's case elected. And all the R rabbits are ganging up. Ah. I mean, it's just yeah. so, it's so sad, I mean, you know, and, and this is a guy who has to speak to the general population. I can't imagine how masculine he is behind closed quarters. But, uh, yeah, Donald Trump seems very angry. <laughs> oh, anger is just so terrible. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, right. Well, visible anger. It's not like women aren't angry. They just do it through other means. <laughs> but anyway, no. Okay, I'd move on to the next caller, but but thanks, man. You're welcome back any time. It was a great uh, – um, Yes, I'd love to do it again, Stefan. I really do enjoy yeah. it. I got a lot more. Okay, to say one last thing it. I mentioned too. Yeah, so you're talking about how you had these sort of conflicts with your friends when you were uh, a kid, and kids have a lot of conflicts, especially when they're unsupervised, and that's very healthy. But kids who are shielded from the supervision by structured activities and make sure everyone has the same equal goodie bags, and the parents cut the cake. You know, if you want to figure out how mature kids are, just put a bunch of them with a cake and knives, and <laughs> see if it turns into Lord of the Flies with flying ice cream, but uh, or flying icing, but. Um, if it's all managed to avoid conflict, hey, great, great moms, you've you've now raised children, you've helped them avoid conflict their whole life long, and now they're going to college and falling apart. You know, I mean, basically, uh, we, we've built these personality structures akin to Jenga in a tsunami, you know, <laughs> blocks flying all over the place, people falling apart. No, you need that kind of conflict. You need that kind of disagreeableness. But when parents are home, they have enough time to know with their kids. Like you have a lot of time with your kids when you're home. I can tell you that for sure. And you're, you're comfortable having conflicts with your kids because it's only going to be half an hour out of a day where you're spending like 12 to 14 to 16 hours together. So you can spend an hour, half an hour, an hour having a conflict. But if you only get sort of half an hour of unstructured time a day with your kids, the last thing you want is having conflict with them because that's your whole day and you don't get a chance to fix it because you're tired and it's late and you got work to do and you got to get up early and blah, 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 blah. And so the fact that parents are both working out means that they're less able to have the necessary conflicts with their kids that teaches kids uh, conflict resolution and healthy anger and, and structure and boundaries and all that. And so parents, uh, particularly the moms, don't want conflict with their kids. And this is where you get the appeasement. And this is where you get the, okay, you can hear, here you can have your video game. Here you can have your sports drink because apparently climbing the stairs is, to get your tablet is now an Olympic event. So uh, I think a lot of this conflict avoidance has created uh, some of this obesity, some of this electronics addiction, some of this stay home where mommy can see you stuff. And also uh, it has uh, created um, an inability to handle conflict 
Um, and that I think is a real shame. All right. Thanks again for the great conversation. Let's move on to the next caller. All right. Up next is Shola. He wrote in and said, having been violently jolted awake by the embarrassing display that is modern politics, I've come to the conclusion that there is no truth in this world. The complete dismantling of the black American identity by charlatans and charming tyrants, the inexplicable rise of multiculturalism, and the countless other forms of false altruism consistently bear down upon us, rob me both of my sleep at night and any confidence I have in the things I've been taught. I think about the implications they hold with regards to human weakness and the ancient thirst for power and control. The question I have for you, Stefan, is... What is the method you utilize to determine what is real and true versus merely ancient and streamlined propaganda? How do you assess what is true from what is bullshit? How do you know who to trust? That's from Shola. Hey, did we, did we get that name even remotely right? Are we close? Yes. Yeah, you did. Shola. Okay, great. Well, very nice to meet you. How are you doing tonight? I'm good. How are you? I'm, uh, I'm well, thank you. Wow. I don't mean to sound negative, but it sounds like these people really got to you, right? Losing uh, sleep and, and you don't know what's true. And I'm not criticizing. I'm just like, I really want to get, make sure I understand just how serious this stuff is for you. And I'm not disagreeing with you. It's serious stuff. But this yeah. is really deep into your spine, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I don't, can you guys hear me okay? Yeah, yeah. It's great. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I don't um, believe in anything really. But... Um, let me just lay the groundwork for my thought process before yeah, yeah, please do. we discover the extent of my insanity. <clears throat> uh, like when I see how easily manipulated uh, people are with regards to liberal ideology, I, it's, it's really hard for me to believe anything anymore because I feel like, like all our fake truths function some way like in keeping us under control. Like look what's... Like, look what's happening. Like, I feel like people are being indoctrinated and plugged into the matrix, like, en masse, you know? And, and it's like, I, I talk to my, I talk to my peers, I talk to people with authority, I talk to people who I look up to, and I talk to them about, like, any kind of, you know, liberal ideology, like, um, even something as, as, like, I live in New York, and uh, we were talking about, uh, the, the, the true effects of minimum wage, like whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. And I'm talking to these people and they're all older than me. And I thought this was just going to be, you know, just a casual conversation. And they're all looking at me like I'm fucking crazy. They're like, oh, how could you not? Your ancestors, blah, 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 blah. Well, the minimum, minimum wage is, you know, one of the greatest things ever. How could you? It's giving people more money. And it's just like, but like the McDonald's around the corner has no people working in the fucking restaurant because they all automated everything. You know, and it's just like, the, 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 you know, they, there's no jobs. Like, you're seeing the effect, you know? And so, and uh, I'm sorry. I'm just getting really, really fucking, it, it just bothers me because I don't. No, this is good. Surrender to the dark side, my friend, because that's where your <laughs> truth will be. That's where your shoulder, this is where your, your energy, your passion, your release from nihilism will be where your anger is. Because anger is hope. Anger is hope. You know, if you, if you ever, hope you never do. If you ever freeze to death, the greatest danger is when you feel warm and tired. I know this because I worked up north and had this drilled into my head repeatedly. If you feel warm and tired, do not lie down and go to sleep. And 
So if, if you feel angry, it's because you have hope. And hope is a good thing because hope means that you believe there's a better state. It gives you a sense of a hierarchy of values and your capacity to achieve something better. Anger is a great motivator. And so I'm perfectly happy and content for you to swear up a storm like a stubbed foot sailor and to get as angry as you like. This is perfectly fine with me. In fact, I welcome it because uh, anger is uh, the laser that cuts through the fog. So um, uh, can, I, um, can I just go off for a second? Please go on. Okay. So uh, like um, this is just my experience. I, I'm not – uh, I, I went to college for a, a bullshit liberal arts degree because I didn't know what I wanted to go to school for. So this is just things I've, you know, I've just seen. I think I've observed. And it's uh, people that, and I, I've lived in black communities all my life. So I don't want to make this about race, but here it goes. So it's like, a, <clears throat> I feel like people that desire power they always take the path of least resistance. And it's like, if you're believing in something that's untrue, like you've, like you've unwittingly given that enemy that path of least resistance. Like I, you, you had an interview with um, Jesse Peterson the other day and he, said, and he said this thing and it was like, I was trying to find the words, like he said what I was thinking, but like he said it like casually, like 10 times better than I could have ever dreamed of. And he said, like, whoever causes you to believe a lie controls you. And, uh, and I, I believe like there's some liberals that, that they truly believe in this false ideology, but like, I'm pretty sure like there's somewhere in like the echelons of evil, like there's someone there that knows that it's a hundred percent bullshit, you know? And, and it, it, it's like, if they're willing to just, you know, just set everything ablaze just for power. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm not that old, but I can see that as bullshit, but it's, it's, it's just completely fooled my friends, my family, like my bosses, my coworkers. And it is, I, I don't, I, I, it's just very hard for me to believe that through all these centuries of time and, and, you know, the, the, there's always been like that strive for that thirst for power. And I, and I don't feel like I don't trust the people of the past to have given us the truth. Like right now. Right. And this is really hard for me to put into words. Like right now, like the only thing that's, I feel the only thing that's saving us from being completely usurped by liberal ideology is the internet. Huh. You know, like if, if, if we didn't have the internet, we'd be done. We have like, you know, a lesbian transgender porn star president by now. And it's like <clears throat> the people of the past didn't have that, that, that access to technology, that access to knowledge that was just, you know, it was instant, you know, like, the, you know, the, the, you know, in the past, like a king would come down or, you know, someone would come down to the, to the town and be like, Hey, did you hear the king could, you know, bang any woman he wants. God came down and said it with his own lips. Oh yeah. Who told you, uh, all the members of his cabinet. And that's how law was made. Like there was no, like there was no, I mean, it wasn't that simple, but it, there was no like fact checking, you know, but now we have the internet, we have the internet, the facts are available to people and people are still getting fooled into this bullshit. And so it's just like, if, 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 and this is supposedly what people oh, say. Okay. I'm sorry. Cause I, I, 
want to make sure it's a conversation. Why do you Sorry. think? What makes you think that they're being fooled? Do you think that these people are after the truth and are somehow being led astray? Isn't this the? Isn't these? Aren't these lies what they want? What they? No, I think I, I think I think people are cowards. I think most people are cowards. Like they they don't like. Uh, with so they prefer lies to integrity because integrity or wanting the truth will bring you in conflict with people who've been propagandized. So they're avoiding exactly. conflict That's... by swallowing. So it's not like they're being led astray. They're, it's, they're like a guy who is a heroin addict who goes marching around all night trying to get heroin who then says, well, somebody just put heroin in my body. It's like, no, they're, they're in the, the media is the drip dispenser of the, mm-hmm. the lies that cowards find necessary for their existence. They, they, they're not victims. They're not like in hot pursuit of truth, but the media just keeps pulling them aside or tripping them up. They're, the media is the drug dealers and they're the addicts. They're not victims. I mean, like if, if there was, if like people like you, right, and Cernovich weren't around, like trying to get people to accept the truth, do you, would you consider them victims? Like, I, I feel like, okay, the only reason why they're, they're not victims is because there's people that are around that have the truth that are trying to, give it to them and they're willingly like just being hard-headed about it right there you do you do that that takes you out of the victim role but if it wasn't if you guys weren't there then it's just like they, they there's no they don't know any alternative like I, I i think it was thomas soul i heard thomas soul say something like this and um duke pesta said something along the same lines like you know most liberals are liberals because they haven't heard an alternate theory yeah, oh, nobody's got any. The internet just celebrated its 20-year anniversary. There's no way anybody has an excuse anymore, particularly cell phones. I mean, in, the cell phones have made the internet so idiot-friendly that apparently now idiots rule the internet. But, I mean, it's uh, – it's uh, my, my favorite line from Sol, though, um, I've had my disagreements with him, but uh, Sol said, uh, what's the definition of a racist? Well, the definition of a racist is a conservative who just won an argument with a liberal. <laughs> it's a great one. <laughs> anyway, um, so no, there's no excuses uh, anymore. Uh, people are responsible for what they consume, you know, because everyone's like, oh, what you, what you eat is what you are. Yeah, at a biological level, of course, the food gets transformed into your body. But what you expose yourself to mentally is far more your identity than what you eat. What you mentally consume is your identity. And people think that they could just walk around eating whatever crap they want mentally, absorbing whatever lies they want mentally. Like, dear God above, dear God above, if you're in Canada, you know, take a little, take a little stroll down Google News. A little stroll down Google News. And look for what Cana- the Canadian media is saying about Donald Trump. Oh, it's so absolutely, wretchedly, twistedly, cult-like biased. I can't even explain it. Like I'm, I'm trying to avoid Google News in Canada these days because it's just like Donald Trump beheads child. Donald Trump. <laughs> they say if, uh, if Donald Trump walked on water, the media would report that he was unable to swim. <laughs> Donald Trump can't swim. Um, and it is just so relentlessly negative. And, of course, there are always – it's always wish fulfillment with the media. It's always wish fulfillment. It's not facts. 
Donald Trump's campaign spiraling out of control. Donald Trump has terrible week. Donald Trump's polls are desperately down. Donald Trump self-detonating. Donald Trump has burst into flames. Donald Trump has been hit by a meteor. Like it's all just wish fulfillment. It's nothing to do with facts. It's what they want to be true, not what is true. Right. So, so this and and the New York. I think it was the New York Times recently wrote something about how yeah we're terribly biased against Trump, but the reality is, of course, it's Donald Trump's fault, <laughs> right? So they, at least they're they're at the stage where they're admitting there is a problem, which is of course the first stage of actually dealing with the problem. But they're still a long way from actually uh, dealing with the uh, problem uh, because. If you're saying, okay, maybe I have a problem with drinking, but it's the fault of the alcoholic manufacturers for making it so damn tasty. So it's not really my fault, but at least, you know, maybe I drink too much, but it's not my fault. Therefore, there's nothing I can do about it. Um, So that stuff is happening all over the place. But again, the great thing is Donald Trump is this giant sunrise that is illuminating the bias of the media, which because most Republicans conform and want the approval of the media has been hidden before. So this kind of stuff uh, is becoming clearer and clearer. And anybody who's only reading the left-wing stuff, which is most of the mainstream media, um, you know, that this is like somebody who smokes three packs a day and then get sick saying, I, 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 I had no idea that smoking was bad for you. It's like, it's right there on the label. Come on. Yeah, I, like, I'm, I'm sorry to put my, my tinfoil hat back on. But you, you just said something about, you know, like, um, you know, the Republicans just, you know, being beholden to the media, right? And <clears throat> uh, one of your guests referred to them as controlled opposition. Like, they're not, like, you know... The, the right isn't really trying to, you know, trounce the left. It's just, it's just smoke and mirrors. It's just an act, right? Yes. Yeah, no, it is. It is. There, I mean, the, the number of leftist policies or programs that the Republicans accept uh, is, um, is completely ridiculous. Yeah, so the, then... Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, but, the, the, but like, that's, that's, that's more of what I'm saying. It's like, you can't, it's very difficult to find like who to trust and, and like what to trust because everything, it, it's just everyone is swallowing everything just consistently and efficiently and, and there's nothing you can do to, to convince anybody otherwise. So it, I, I, I mean like as far as politics go, Stefan, like what do you believe? Like how do you know what to believe? Like you, you haven't experienced everything from you, for yourself. Like there's certain things that you hold as true that's that's hearsay. No. Well, I mean, most of life is hearsay, right? I mean, how many things do mm-hmm. we experience directly that are particularly important? Exactly. I mean, I'll tell you this: me being bald, not hearsay. <laughs> pretty sure that's that's the way yeah, things yeah, go. Yeah. But um, in terms of what I believe, mm-hmm. it is a matter of. Seeing people's commitment to the truth, regardless of bias. And in particular, this means regardless of popularity. Look, there are so many positions that I have taken that are unpopular with people who say they like me, right? My, my, my whole process seems to be like wooing women and slapping them in the face. <laughs> it's like, you're very pretty. I would really love to take you out on a date. Oh, uh, right? I mean, because people like me because they come across something that I say and it hits them in their 
happy G spot. Uh, and they, they think, wow, I'm great. Right. And then I come up with something else and, um, they think I'm terrible. <laughs> and it's like, well, because I'm not, I'm not, it's not a popularity contest. I mean, if I wanted a popularity contest, trust me, I could make it in TV. I could make it. In, I mean, I have the skills, the charisma, the language. I mean, I could do all of that. That's like, that's not even a, I could roll out of bed and fall into that kind of stuff. But the purpose of course is, is truth because popularity is a mess. Uh, it is a, uh, popularity is entropy. Popularity is no longer being a leader, but being a follower. Fol uh, uh, popularity is no longer being a creator, but being a parasite, because you want to get stuff out of people by appealing to what they like, rather than bring the truth to people and find good relationships that way. So yeah, libertarians used to love me. And then I started talking about immigration and uh, race and IQ and bringing the experts on. And now I guess a lot of them don't like me and we've gone in different directions. <laughs> well, okay, fine. I guess I've gone in the direction of reason and evidence and they have gone in some other direction, right? And I mean, I annoyed a lot of Christians and I've apologized for that. And, and now I sort of recognize and understand uh, a lot of the value that Christianity brought to the West. And I'm opening up more dialogue and more conversation uh, with uh, Christians. And um, so all of this uh, is... Um, natural uh for for this kind of stuff so people on the left they they you know when i did the video would do videos or, or shows criticizing u.s foreign policy and uh, they're like wow this guy really gets it when it was a terrible thing we did in iraq blah, blah 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 boom right and then they start hearing about my criticisms of the welfare state and it's like that guy i hate that guy <laughs> it's like and all, all it shows is that they are reactionary nothing burgers in their hearts and minds they are simply bouncing off emotional prejudice and there are things that have turned out to be uh, false that I thought were true. Uh, and there are things that have turned out to be true that I thought were false. And I bring all of this information to the listeners. And I have evolved, of course, because a fool never changes his opinions because they're not based on anything real. A wise man changes his opinions to reflect new reason, uh, new arguments, new evidence. Of course, you, you have to. I mean, saying, well, I learned this stuff when I was a doctor when I was 25, and I'm still going to be doing exactly the same doctoring when I'm 65. It's like, you are a terrible doctor. <laughs> you really need to not <laughs> be doing what you're doing. And um, this is from uh, Breitbart. Uh, I guess I mentioned this before. I, I sort of picked this up. So the New York Times has admitted that journalists are biased against Donald Trump. However, according to Times media columnist Jim Rutenberg, oh, look, another iceberg bringing down the Titanic. It's Trump's fault. And uh, so he says, uh, this guy writes a quote, if you're a working journalist and you believe that Donald J. Trump is a demagogue playing to the nation's worst racist and nationalistic tendencies, that he cozies up to anti-American dictators and that he would be dangerous with control of the United States nuclear codes, how the heck are you supposed to cover him? Because if you believe all of those things, you have to throw out the textbook American journalism has been using for the better part of the past half century, if not longer, and approach it in a way you're, you've never approached anything in your career. If you view a Trump presidency as something that's potentially dangerous, then your reporting is going to reflect that. You would move closer than you've ever been to being oppositional, you see, because until Donald Trump, you see, New York Times reporters were not pro-Democrat and anti-Republican. They were neutral. But now, you see, Donald Trump has caused them to drop their objective journalistic standards and become partisan hacks, you know, in the same way that a woman's short skirt can cause you to deal with her inappropriately. It's not your fault. She's just got a short skirt. Now, apparently, you see, a demagogue, 
a demagogue, um, I don't even know what that means in terms of, I mean, I know what the technical definition is. I never know what people, it's just, you know, this he's saying things I don't like. Demagogue! Therefore, he's a demagogue. Playing to the nation's worst racist and nationalistic tendencies. So apparently, nationalistic is the same as racist, you see? <laughs> Having patriotism is the same as being an evil bigot. So this tells you exactly where the New York Times is coming from. They're going to equate pride in America's Republican and limited government remnants and so on with being racist. Now, of course, Obama has never, ever appealed to anyone's racism whatsoever by calling, say, Trayvon Martin his son that he never had and uh, criticizing the police for being racist uh, and uh, fueling the Black Lives Matter movement and, feel, uh, and, and meeting with the Black Lives. He's never, ever done anything like that. So, yes, we want to make sure we don't have a demagogue who plays to the nation's worst racist tendencies. Oh, do we have any American politicians in the past who've cozied up to anti-American dictators. Gosh, I wonder. I wonder if Obama seems to have recently play, paid a bribe of considerable amounts of money. What is it? $400 million that he had to send in Swiss francs because apparently he's in euros because he's not allowed to do it uh, in American dollars. Send it over for the release of those sailors. Uh, and uh, of course, this apparently was it's just some payover from a leftover 1970s deal that just happened to coincide and they had to wait for this money to arrive to release the hostages and so on. So cozying up to anti-American dictators, I don't know, how about paying hundreds of millions of dollars in tribute to get people released? What that means is that he has completely broken the long-term American policy of not negotiating with terrorists or terrorist-sympathizing governments, and now he just paid a ransom for release. What that means is he put a big giant dollar bill sign on kidnapping Americans from here to eternity, cozying up to anti American dictators. Gosh, I wonder. I wonder if anyone here in the American government recently has was pro Chavez or anything like that. Anti-American dictators. Oh, what about uh, the people in charge of the communist hellhold of uh, Cuba? I wonder if anyone's cozied up to any of that kind of stuff. Dangerous with control of the United States nuclear codes. Boy, boy, it'd be. Be great if Hillary Clinton got a hold of the U.S. nuclear codes because, boy, she's never had any tendency whatsoever to destabilize and overthrow foreign governments. Boy, that's never happened before in the past. So anyway, it's just complete nonsense uh, what they come up with. Um, and uh, the idea that, um, well, it's, uh, it's Donald Trump's fault that I find him dangerous uh, is uh, completely insane. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, saying, well, you know, Donald Trump's come along and therefore I have to get rid of my objectivity. 2008, uh, this article says journalists swooned over the prospect of Barack Obama as the first black president and coordinated to discuss attacks on Obama's critics. Oh, oh. my God. It's uh, oh, a complete, complete madness. I mean, they, uh, well, we'll get into all that next week when we talk to her. But anyway, I mean, they, Juanita Broderick, they suppressed Juanita Broderick's accusation of Bill Clinton's rape until after an election. Anyway, I mean, it's all. It's all madness. So, uh, so look, I mean, how do I figure out who's trustworthy? Well, I, um, I look uh, for people who correct themselves. I look for people who uh, back down from something which is, turns out to be false. Uh, I look for people who provide credible sources. I look for people who are consistent. I look for people who aren't agenda or ego-driven. In other words, they don't use language the way that someone uses materials to build a bridge across a chasm. Everything is to get across the chasm. Do people use language 
to get somewhere, to get some effect, to get something to happen, to get some perspective across, to get some emotional impact? Are they manipulators of language for a usually political end, or are they simply reporting the truth as they see it? Uh, are they equal opportunity criticizers? You know, like people say to me, uh, uh, Steph, have you ever criticized Donald Trump, or are you just It's like, well, um, Yes, <laughs> the Apple encryption thing. I think he was way off base in and uh, said that pretty uh, pretty vociferously during that entire presentation. But, uh, you know, so are they willing – do they have people that they can't criticize or won't criticize? Uh, and do they provide primary sources? And And here's a great tip for how to trust people. Were they right in the past? Ooh, you know, there's a big and good one, right? So uh, I think I first became aware – of the entirely glorious Mike Cernovich uh, during the Michelle Fields altercation. And, uh, you know, he was right. And, and you know, one thing that you might notice about Mike from time to time, he's pretty right <laughs> about these things. And, you know, where he ends up uh, having to put out corrections, he puts out corrections. Um, and so a good track record, you know, it's not that... How do you know the best batter? Well, you look at their batting average. You know, how do you know the fastest swimmer? Well, you look at their time, right? I mean, you've got a long history with people, and of course, the internet is the is the giant cuck revealer that never forgets, right? So, you can look back on people's past predictions and figure out were they right in the past? You know, in other words, were the exact opposite of Bill Crystal? These kinds of things, right? So. You, you can see people's track record. You can see how they approach information. You can see how they do their sources. You can see whether they circle back. You can see their past predictions and their accuracy. And it doesn't take long to build up trust in someone once you get that kind of information. And it's sure it's easier to get now than it has ever been before. And um, once I see that in someone, there's an old saying about reputation. It can take a lifetime to build a reputation and it can take five minutes to destroy it. And that is very true. That is very true. And so if somebody has worked very hard to build a reputation for honesty, for integrity, for accuracy, for empirical verification, and so on, and if they are responsibly cautious about what they say about people, until they're certain, in which case they can go full tilt boogie. So what that means is that somebody is building a brand Sounds kind of like cheap in marketing, but they're building a reputation. Now, someone doesn't spend years building a reputation in order to destroy it in a few minutes, right? That that doesn't make any sense. That's like, that would be as pathological as a guy spending 20 years learning to be an excellent pianist so he can go to Carnegie Hall and then smashing his hands with a hammer five minutes before his big opening. I mean, that just doesn't happen. Uh, people work for 20 years to get to Carnegie Hall so they can damn well play Carnegie Hall. Maybe, I don't know, three times like Yes did in the 70s or something. But that is um, what I look for. I look for people who are invested in the truth rather than in popularity and who have built a reputation that they're very interested in maintaining. Are they R-selected or K-selected? Because R-selected people use language, the sites. I did a show on that uh, a month or two ago. They use language in order to achieve an effect. People write about Donald Trump in order to make you dislike Donald Trump. People write about Hillary Clinton in order to make you like Hillary Clinton. And when Donald Trump says, uh, makes a joke about a baby, suddenly Donald Trump hates babies. You know, it's just, oh, come on. If he hates babies, he seems to be surrounded by an awful lot of grandchildren. I don't think he's very good at hating babies because he's kind of buried in them. Bunch of fertile, case selected people. But anyway. Um, so, so can I ask you a question? Yeah, yeah. 
So um, I, I was listening to when you said uh, how you identify people you can trust, right? So if you never heard like a, if you never heard an alternative theory, like uh, a lot of people say, you know, black people are suffering now because of, you know, the sins of the past and blah, 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 blah. If you never heard the alternate theory to that and that was all you heard, would you think that it's someone spewing fallacies in order to, to gain control? Or would you just well, I mean, I don't true? know what it would mean to never hear an alternative theory. I don't need to hear alternative theories to think for myself. And of course, you know, I have heard all of this stuff uh, about blacks, uh, that uh, it is, of course, the result of uh, slavery and Jim Crow and so on and all of that. And, um, well, it's not hard to figure out, you know, these kinds of questions. So if people say, well, blacks are suffering because of a history of racism, I'd say, okay, well, let's look at black countries where there was no ownership from um, the Western powers. You look at Haiti. Haiti's been free of colonialism for 400 years. Mm-hmm. So that's one example. Uh, I would also look and say, well, if slavery is bad for a community, then were blacks ever participants in the slave trade? And of course they were, and the slave trade only occurred because uh, blacks were willing to catch slaves and bring them. So, you know, so then the problem is slavery, not white slavery. The problem is, and whites generally were involved in slavery less than, certainly far less than the Muslims, less than the Jews. Uh, only four or five percent of Americans ever owned slaves, and some proportion of those were blacks who owned slaves. So slavery is kind of this universal thing. Um, our, you know, our ancestors, uh, my ancestors were slaves. The Irish were captured in slaves. And of course, uh, there were huge slaves, huge numbers of slaves all throughout the um Roman Empire and, and all of the ancient empires and a lot of the modern empires, slavery is still flourishing in certain areas of the world. And so if it's like, oh, well, see, the blacks are doing badly because of slavery, then we say, okay, well, let's compare blacks who have not been enslaved uh, and, and how are they doing? Or we'd say, well, how are blacks doing before uh, white people came along? Well, um, not spectacularly, we could say, you know, in, the, in Africa or at least in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, they not had a wheel, no written language to speak of. No, no two-story buildings and so on, you know, pretty primitive conditions. So it wasn't like they were having these giant, you know, jetpack civilizations before they were crushed by the medieval Europeans and so on. So, you know, this is just ways of, of looking at it. And that's one way. Another way, of course, is looking at other groups that were oppressed in society. Um, of course, the coolies, as they were called back in the day, uh, used particularly out in the West Coast, the, the Chinese and other Oriental laborers who were used to build uh, railways and other, and they were brutally treated abysmally. Uh, treated. And um, uh, we can also look at um, uh, the degree to which uh, there was anti-discriminatory laws placed against uh, Orientals. And of course, uh, the Japanese internment camps, uh, we can look at the fact that um, um, I think we could safely say that the Holocaust against the Jews in Europe, a little bit worse than slavery. Uh, and um, uh, the, the traditional anti-Semitism that has been part of Christian culture for a variety of reasons uh, was bad for uh, Jews. Uh, of course, it was a government program supposed to suppress Jews, and what it did was actually help advance Jewish IQ to one standard deviation beyond <laughs> Western Europeans. But anyway, um, so we would look at other groups that have experienced a, a lot of oppression and say, okay, well, have they ended up in the same economic position as blacks? And the answer, of course, is no, not uniformly. And so you can't look at this one thing uh, and say that's the explanation for everything because it doesn't apply to blacks who weren't enslaved and it doesn't apply to other communities that experienced massive and repeated discrimination and genocide uh, against the Jews and so on. The Jews who fled Europe, as I've mentioned before, the Jews who fled Europe and came to North America came with nothing and were fleeing 
um, genocide. And it took them four years to gain income parity with Americans who were here for many years, even with language barriers, even with no capital and so on. So um, it's not yeah, so, uh, I'm sorry. Not the case. So Go ahead. When, when you were when you were young. Right. And you heard, you know, all these liberals, um, liberal ideology, that assessment you just made, you know, uh, comparing it to history, comparing it to other groups, comparing comparing it to the uh, the state that Africa is in right now. Was that your first did you automatically do that or did you like what I'm trying to say is like uh, going back to what you said about how how you how you determine who's telling the truth, who's trustworthy and, and whatever is, you know, seeing if they have ul- ulterior motives. But like, what, I, what I was trying to say is that it's it's very difficult to find out the ulterior motive. Until no, it's not. You're, no, I'm sorry to be annoying. It's not. And no, 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 once you get this, hang on, hang on. Once you get this, it'll make perfect sense, I think. So, Shelda, it's the old, old, old thing. You follow the money. You follow the money. Right? So, so for me, a lot to do with objectivity. Right? People respond to incentives. So when I look at someone who is putting forward a set of arguments that, People can get interested in anything. People can write about anything. They can take any approach they want. They can focus on any subject that they want. So my question is, why are they spending time focusing on this subject at this time with this amount of energy? And so my first question for them is, where do they get their money? Where do they get their money? Now, if they get their money from the government, I'm going to assume they're not anarchists. (laughs) I'm going to assume they're not libertarians. If they're getting their money from the government, then they are going to be in the pocket of the government and their integrity is going to be compromised without a doubt. Clearly. Look, if an advertising agency's biggest contract is with brand X drink and they make $5 million a year advertising for brand X drink, are they going to be objective about the long-term negative health consequences of brand X drink? Of course not. Of course not. So if somebody is getting their money not from the market, that's one of my first questions. Is this person market-facing? In other words, are they getting their money from the market, from voluntary transactions from multiple people around the world, either through donations or through selling something? Are they getting their money from the market? Or are they being spoon-fed by some other institutions, and then bringing information to the market. Because then I know for sure that the people whose needs they're serving are not the people to whom they're serving up information, but for the people from whom they are getting their checks. You know, if there's some, I don't know, uh, some group that is funding uh, a bunch of websites, then no question that they're serving the needs of that group. They're not serving the needs of the people who come to the website. There's no question of that. If people have advertisers, then they're serving the needs of the advertisers, which I get that doesn't mean that there's no way they can be objective about anything. It's just a fact that if they say something that bothers the advertisers, they're going to have to unsay it pretty damn quick, usually, and, and pretty quickly. So if they're getting money from advertisers, and again, I have no problem with advertising. It's a free market phenomenon, but it is going to be a challenge to objectivity. Think tanks in particular, they're getting their money from specific groups, signing the checks. Well, if you're getting money from some legacy, 
right? Like maybe someone died and signed over all of their intellectual property to you and you're getting all this legacy money from them. You're still not market facing in the same way. You kind of got an inheritance and you think you're a great businessman or businesswoman or something. Um, when, when, when people get new information, how do they react to it? How do they react to new information? Well, are they curious about it and research it? Or do they double down, get defensive and attack? That to me is, again, these are all signs of intellectual integrity and curiosity. So yeah, look for reputation, look for market facing, follow the money, look for a past history of success in predictions and look for honest changes in position with new information. I mean, the, the, I've gone through this a million times, so I won't again. The number of things I've changed my mind on, even over the last 10 years, based upon new information, is significant. And I'm honest about it. I don't pretend I always believed it. I say, big change of course here. And I put out apologies or changes or whatever it is. So as far as trying to find ways or, or, or people that you can trust, you know, it's a long-term process. But after somebody has earned your trust, I think it's fair to give it, you know, like, I mean, you don't want to say to people, you know, for 50 bucks, come mow my lawn. And then they mow the lawn, you don't give them the 50 bucks. Like when people have earned your trust, I think you kind of have to give it. There's a kind of withholding of trust that comes a sort of post-traumatic stress disorder from people who've been subject to a lot of betrayal. There's this hoarding of trust. You don't want to give over trust. You don't want to give trust to people and so on. But there are, uh, there are people that it would take quite a lot for me to lose my trust in them. Uh, and of course, nobody's perfect. We all make mistakes. We all put out information that turns out to be incorrect. And the important thing is what you do with that. So we don't have to be having a standard of perfection in order to give our trust. But once somebody's earned trust, I think trust must be given as an act of integrity. Uh, and that doesn't mean you no longer evaluate what people say or anything like that. People can go nuts or get brain tumors or whatever. So, uh, But um, I think trust once earned uh, must be uh, given as uh, honest and fair uh, payment uh, because otherwise then – if no, if you can't end up trusting anyone, then you have no standards by which you can um, uh, evaluate truth or falsehood. So uh, I hope that that helps. Those are sort of my my approaches to it. I mean, like they're great. Like, and with individuals, I think it's it's a lot it's a lot easier. But like when you're talking about institutions, I, I think it becomes more difficult. Like, and, and that's what that's why I I uh, referenced you know this whole Black Lives Matter bullshit and fucking multiculturalism because all this seems to be being promoted by the institutions that we've been trained to trust and you know put yeah but i mean i i generally don't trust institutions as a whole i trust individuals right so, so because to me so now now that you have the internet you don't need an institution to get an argument or a perspective across in the world you don't need an institution for that anymore you can just be like Mike Mike Cernovich uh, to return to that well again. He's just one guy, but he doesn't need a TV studio. He doesn't, and he reaches more people than a lot of TVs do, TV uh, shows do. So you don't need an institution. My question is sort of a why? Why would you need an institution in order to get things across? You've got a perfect platform through through YouTube, through podcasting, and all of that. It's relatively cheap and and very effective and very powerful, and a true meritocracy in terms of being able to get ideas across to people. So as far as institutions go, I'm always like, well, why would you need to be part of an institution? You know, um, uh, Taylor Swift is not in a choir. <laughs> She's up there singing solo, maybe a couple of backup singers and so on. But um, 
I would say that um, I wouldn't trust institutions as a whole. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, a group of people who've gotten together all with a common purpose, that automatically means that um, they're false. But if the institution is, is again, if it's market-driven, if it's if it's responding to listenership and, and so on, and if they uh, put out perspectives and are willing to correct their mistakes, then, you know, I'm willing to sort of give them benefit of a doubt. But even with institutions, there are people who are better and worse at bringing things across. So it's not like, well, every newspaper is automatically false, but there are certain people I would trust more, even within particular institutions, more or less. Gotcha. And I, I, I get the sense you're, you're trying to um, get on with the show, but I just, my, my thing is, is like uh, in the present now, right? Because of the precedent that's, that the internet is set, like we don't need institutions anymore. We can access knowledge on our own, but all the things that we've been taught to, to believe that we've been told is true, like they were established at a time when, you know, knowledge wasn't as free as it is now. So that's what my question is basically focused on. Like what what reason do we have? I mean, there, there's certain things that I believe are true, like things that come from the self, you know, love, my obligation to family, uh, people that ask questions or looking for the truth, those things, things like that. But like as far as things that, you know, we're taught to believe now, like, how do you, can you think, what, what, what do you use to like, not question, how do you not question everything you've been told? Well, now see for that, I'm going to recommend a series I did many years ago called an introduction to philosophy, because to say, um, you know, here's how we determine truth from falsehood, uh, here are the standards that we use. That's a big, big topic, and I don't want to sort of reproduce what it took me. It wasn't a whole, you don't have to watch all 17. Just watch the first couple. It's called uh, An Introduction to Philosophy. It's on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash radio. And so have have a look at that. Now, if there's stuff that doesn't make sense in that for you, or maybe stuff that's uh, you know changed, I don't think there is, but you know, come on back and we'll talk about it some more. But as far as you know, how you go from metaphysics to epistemology to... Um, to to ethics, to to politics, or wherever, these are things that I've put a lot of energy into sort of explaining beforehand, so I sort of want, don't want to go through that again, but um, there are ways to do it that, that make sense and, and follow the sort of scientific approach of um, the senses are valid in general, at least in combination. Um, reality is uh, out there and objective, and our brain is capable of error, which is why we need philosophy. Uh, we have emotional and, and other... Uh, confirmation biases and so on. So it's a great question. You know, how do we know what is true and what is false? And, you know, I'm one of the few thinkers out there in public who've put out a whole methodology on how to determine truth from falsehood, which should give people some reason to trust me because I'm saying here's the methodology to determine truth from falsehood that's independent of anything that I say and which I myself am subjected to. And that's not very common out there in intellectual circles. So, um, that is another reason why I think that people can trust me because I'm subjecting myself to a methodology that I very clearly explained out in the world many years ago. And uh, nothing has changed fundamentally for me about that because that can't change any more than science can suddenly become mysticism. And so, yeah, just introduction to philosophy. It's right here on YouTube. You can also get it um, uh, at fdrpodcast.com. So have a go through that, at least the first four shows or five shows. They're not too long. I think half an hour, 40 minutes each. Have a go over it. And please excuse the audio quality. This was 
way back in the day. But uh, I may re- redo those at some point, you know, when I get around to my infinite list of stuff I'd like to get done. <laughs> but uh, uh, so have a listen to those, uh, Shola. And, and uh, if you have any sort of questions or issues, then, you know, you're certainly welcome to come back and we can talk about it further. Thanks again for your call tonight. Thanks again for everyone who has called in. It's good to be back. It's good to be king of the uh, philosophical internets. And um, freedomainradio.com slash donate or fdrurl.com slash donate if you want to save some typing strokes to help out the show. We really, really need your support now more than ever as we get into this crucial, crucial um, juncture in Western history. We need more philosophy than ever. So freedomainradio.com slash donate. You can follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux, fdrpodcast.com to share the shows, fdrurl.com slash Amazon if you've got some shopping to do and want to kick us some change at no cost to yourself. We'd appreciate that as well. Thank you so much for these great conversations. They are the meat and drink of my existence, and I really, really treasure the opportunity to discuss and delve into such important topics with you. I appreciate it. I love you all. Great to be back. Thanks for listening.